When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Well, it's that time of the week again. The first hour of uh, our program on Friday morning. What better way to kick off the weekend and what better way to kick off an action-packed show than by giving you an opportunity to ask questions about anything you see fit. That's right. It is time after a week of waiting. It is time for The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Whatever you have questions about, I will do my best to answer them. If you have questions about film, television, books, business, radio, the business of radio, Cocktails, advice. If you need some advice, I'm happy to give it to you. If you have questions about my personal history, you want to know who my third grade teacher was, I'll tell you. Uh, if you have questions about pro wrestling, gambling, Atlantic City, local politics, restaurants, New York, uh, the criminal justice system, aliens, the mob, hypothetical questions of any sort. Uh, those have been kind of fun lately. Would you do this or would you do that? Or uh, my personal preferences. Do you prefer boxers or brief? Whatever the case may be. Relationships, baseball, the culture at large, religion, foreign policy, or anything else you can think of. I am happy to answer your questions on any subject. All you have to do is dial. 1-800-848-9222. Now, uh, in order to sweeten the pot, in order to uh, generate some really creative questions... Whoever comes up with the most interesting question, the most creative question, as determined by our staff, which today consists of one, two, three, four people, and I guess if there's a tie, I'll be the tiebreaker if they can't come to consensus among the four of them, of uh, Izzy, Kenneth, Alex Barnard, and, uh, well, I guess Alex should break the tie because he's the senior member of our staff, or Ryan Modica, no relation to Noel Modica, we will um, give you, whoever comes up with that prize, we'll give you a complimentary piece of uh, Other Side of Midnight merchandise. Probably a shirt, but could also be a cap, depending on what we have in stock. And in order to sweeten the pot even more, for any listeners that we may have in the Silver State, if you call in from Nevada and ask a question, even if it's not the best question, whatever the question might be, you might want to ask what's uh, six times six. Whatever the question is, we will give you, if you're calling from the state of Nevada, a complimentary WABC or the other side of Midnight T-shirt. All right. Uh, 1-800-848-9222. Let's get to it. Let me begin with Sal on Staten Island. Hello there, Sal. Oh, how are you? That's great. That's the easiest question I've gotten in weeks. Oh, Glenn Miller. What happened to him, please? Well, in terms of his death? His death, yes. 
Well, I don't know. It, it's a little bit of a mystery, right? And that's one of the mysteries that's um, that's in my uh, that you know that's on my um, you know on my list of of conspiracy theories to explore. But there's a whole bunch of conspiracy theories and hypotheses that have been published about Glenn Miller's death. Some that he was assassinated after Eisenhower sent him on a secret mission to negotiate a peace deal with uh, with the Nazis. Some that he died of a heart attack in a brothel in uh, in France. And um, some just that he he was on a uh, on an airplane that flew into cold weather and experienced some you know some mechanical malfunction. And the aircraft lost power and it crashed into the cold water. And uh, so the truth is, I have no idea. Uh, I would like to know. And that's one of the issues that we are going to be exploring in a future show. Questions on any subject. Pete is in New Jersey. Hello, Pete. What's your question? Hi, Frank. Frank, do you consider the American wars of um, the the Mexican War and the Spanish-American War wars of aggression? And have you ever seen the movie Rough Riders? No, uh, Rough Riders is on my list. Do I consider the Spanish-American War and the uh, Mexican-American War uh, uh, wars of aggression? Look, the Mexican War, yes. The the answer is pretty clear. I mean, it was a war that America didn't need to fight, and it was pretty clear that we were uh, being, as a country, a little bit of a bully there. The Spanish-American War, I'm also going to say yes, but it's with a little bit more hesitation. Uh, I mean, if you look at what, and I'm reading a book about this now, and uh, I'm going to have the the author on again soon. I've I've interviewed him before, and he's a very bright guy. But uh, the if you look at what the people who actually lived in Cuba were having to contend with uh, from uh, from the rule of of Spain, it was pretty atrocious. Now, does that give the United States? the the power to be even the hemisphere's policeman and go in and rescue everybody i would say if i was around then probably not and you know if you look at some of the debates they were having then they're very similar to the debates that we're having now in in 2022 about what the proper role of uh, the american military is so the mexican war i will say yes spanish american war i will say yes uh, so it's uh, I'm going to say yes on both counts, but the, with the Spanish American War, it's with a lot more hesitancy. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Theodore in Michigan. Hello, Theodore. Good morning. Did you watch the movie Two Thousand Mules? Not yet, not yet. I am uh, I am hoping to do it next week, but I have not seen it yet. I got a a, a password to watch it from my brother in law who's seen it, and uh, I've spoken to some people that have been very taken with it. I've read a lot about it on uh, both supposed fact-checkers and people that believe that it speaks the truth. So far, I have not seen it. So I'm not going I'm gonna, I'm gonna to hold my, my analysis of it until I've actually seen the film. So I have not yet seen it. Uh, 800-848-9222. Neil is on Staten Island. Hello, Neil. Hey, Frank. You go back in time and you meet with the founding fathers, after they've written the Constitution, but before it's ratified, when you look at it, what do you say to them? Do you add anything? Do you delete anything? Or do you modify anything? Uh, well, that's such a good question. Well, look, I mean, it's it's almost not a fair question to ask because I have more than 200 years of history to look back at how things have worked out, right? So um, if you look at after the Constitution was came out of the convention – one of the things that people were were upset about is that it had no Bill of Rights attached to it. So I would have been in the camp that said we should have a Bill of Rights before they ratify it. Now, let's assume once the Bill of Rights is attached to it, 
I probably would have asked for a little bit more clarity on the uh, on the Second Amendment issue. And uh, I know that this was not fashionable at the time, but I would have supported popular election of U.S. senators at the time that the Constitution was written before it was amended. The uh, U.S. senators were elected by the state legislature. I, I am somebody that I like direct election of senators. Even I recognize there's some perils with that. Um, what else would I have ratified, um, you know, or, or I have amended? That's such a good question. I, you know what? I really do love the idea of senators at large, right? I, even though it's totally, it's not in the Constitution, I love the idea of allowing uh, former presidents, say, to serve as U.S. senators at large, representing the country as a whole, not necessarily from one specific state. So I I, kind of like that idea. So I would have maybe pushed for something like that. What else would I have have, um, pushed for? I I think, by and large, the Constitution is a pretty strong document. I I think, even though he was not a delegate to the Constitution, one of the things that I think um, that one of the sayings around that time that has really ratified has always resonated with me was something that Thomas Jefferson said was that um, essentially governments belong to the generations that live in it. So I think that the Constitution is wonderful for the time that it was written. But I I think that uh, the present generation should have the ability to pass legislation that they see fit and uh, uh, pass some amendments that they see fit that, um, that do. I, I'd want to think about this a great deal because there's a number of constitutional amendments that I'd like to see. Maybe we'll do a whole show on this. Maybe we'll do this next week. So I'm going to I'm going to punt your answer till next week, Neil. It's a great question. And I'm sorry I don't have a better answer aside from saying that I would have wanted a Bill of Rights and I would have liked direct election of senators even at the time. And I would have liked term limits uh, for the president even at the time and term limits for Congress. Even at the time. But again, who knew back then people thought that you were going to go to Congress, serve a couple of terms and then go back into the field. They didn't think you were going to make this a lifetime job. So how would you have even said this is something that needs to be corrected, which is why what Jefferson said about the present generation being the one that really needs to be making laws is so relevant so uh, maybe we'll do a, um, you know, uh, the fellow Larry Sabato from the University of Virginia has written a great book all about what should be in the next constitution. And there's a lot of areas of government that I think need to be explored. Um, I have some thoughts on it. And you've expired, inspired a talk topic for next week. We're going we're gonna, to not only give you my two cents on what should be changed in the constitution, but invite other folks to um, you know, in, in offer their two cents as well. 800-848-9222, 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to, um, let's see, Howard is in Elmhurst. What's your question, Howard? My question is, if Frankie Russo is joining WABC, who's he replacing? Well, I think he's joined it as a podcast. I think he's doing a podcast on WABCRadio.com. My understanding is he's not yet on the radio. I understand. Thank you very much. You're welcome. 800-848-9222. Peter is in White Plains. Hello, Peter. 
right. Will you, will you be interviewing uh, Attorney Al Puro, who, who was sitting in federal prison I, while his wife, Jeanine Puro, was a sitting DA? I'd love to do that. Will you be doing that? I would love to do that. Okay. I'd love to have Al Puro on. He's a smart guy and a guy with a colorful history, that's for sure. I would love to have Al Puro on. 800-848-9222. Charles is in Queens. Hello, Charles. Good morning. Good morning, Frank. There's a saying that goes something like, there are little lies, big lies, huge lies, humongous lies, and then come statistics. Meaning you can say something, a statistic, which is seems right, but it's really not. Totally not. So I'm trying to understand. Nobody seems to object, the way I see it, to the number that is uh, allotted to the inflation rate. 8.7% or something. Uh, 9. Right, 5, in that neighborhood. In that sure. ballpark. Right. I, I, I don't know. Gas went up more than 100%. Everything that you eat, everything that you buy has to come with a truck or a plane or whatever. So gas is right there. That's 100% right there. I don't think it's 100 I'm just saying it affects everything. And, and heating, how is it 8.7? And I do my own shopping. I, I know what things cost. All my friends what things cost. Nobody objects to the number. I think it's totally fraud. Well, I think I, the CPI Charles, is, I, I is agree. Wrong. I agree with you, and that's because the CPI, the consumer, uh, you know, the consumer index of inflation, does not right, yeah. take into account energy or food prices. Now that's great, and it makes a lot of sense unless you need to eat anything, or unless you need to travel anywhere, or unless you need to turn on your heat, or unless you need to turn on your air conditioner, or unless you need to turn on your light. I mean, it makes no sense. The, but for whatever reason, the people that have determined how we measure inflation in the country have decided they want to omit energy and food prices. It makes no sense. And you're right. If you included energy and food prices, that true number would be far greater than 8.2 percent. That is absolutely true. Lenny is in Beth Page. Hello, Lenny. Yes, Frank, I just want to ask you a question. What do the battles of Bunker Hill and San Juan Hill have in common. Um, so is this a question you already know the answer to? You're not genuinely curious about it? No, I do know the answer to. I thought maybe you wanted to know the answer. Sure. Uh, well, you probably do know no, the answer. No, I, I don't. Go ahead. Oh, well, neither one was fought on those hills. Oh, I did not know that. Well, and that's pretty interesting. And, and San Juan Hill was fought on Kettle Hill. You know, that's the, exactly the kind of thing that I would like to know, and I'm surprised that I don't know. Uh, that is a I'm great— I'm surprised you didn't too, because you know so much history. That, that's a good one. Okay. Hey, thank Bye. you very much for that, Lenny. That's a good one. Thank you. 800-848-9222, answering your questions on any subject, at least trying. Clearly, there are certain questions I'm not able to answer. Uh, two open lines if you want to jump on board. Let me say hello to Gina in Brooklyn. Hello, Gina. Hi, Frank. Frank, I wanted to know, what are the responsibilities of a producer for a radio host? You know, I'm going to invite Alex in to, uh, to answer this question if, he, if he's around, uh, because every show is kind of different and every producer is kind of different. I will ask our producer, Alex, what he thinks his responsibilities are. And this way, I, I'm glad you asked this, because this way I can write him down. And then whatever, whatever he's not doing going forward, we can actually hold him to this. Great question, Gina. Go ahead. What are the responsibilities of a producer, Alex? Well, basically, Gina, and that is a very good question, uh, a lot of the responsibilities that I have to do include gathering sound for Frank, for Rita Cosby, for... Well, let's say you're yeah. just on our program. Oh, just on our program, coordinating with guests, 
um, making sure, for example, like some of the guests that we're going to have on tonight are uh, coming on through uh, systems other than the phone. So making sure that everything is in working order before they get on the air. Um, but even some more random things like uh, last night you wanted me to print out a form that uh, that uh, you needed for something. I don't even know what the form is for, but... Um, you you all you have me for example send you the links to your uh podcasts uh you know keeping track of the music that is played on the show so that you can post it to the uh Facebook group I'm also a moderator in your Facebook group um and so it's it's a lot more wide ranging than just um gathering sound i even sometimes get <laughs> get your coffee from the coffee machine when well, you're well that's rare if, you I know it's like. rare and i don't need and and to be fair you don't um it's not like you say, Alex, go get me my coffee. You know what I mean? I just if you're in a rush between a break and uh, and I notice that you went to go get coffee, I often go running yeah. and grab okay. it. Okay, well, that's a, I feel like that's a good description. Um, I hope that answers your question, Gina. Having been a radio producer myself for many years, you know, there's um, there's really no one. Uh, description and there's no one list of responsibilities. It sort of varies from show to show, from station to station. Uh, one of the best descriptions of what a radio producer does is from a book. Uh, it's about 18 years old now, and it's a little dated. And uh, some people, when I've, uh, you can get back to your responsibilities now, Alex. Unless there's anything else you want to add. Uh, no, I think just the bottom line is making sure that the host always sounds good is right. the biggest there, there role of that's, a producer. Well, then if that's the case, you failed five times over. Oh, wow. Thanks, Frank. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but, um, anyway, like I was saying, this book, the radio producer's handbook, it's a very good book. And I, I got it for a friend of mine recently who launched a radio show and sent it to his producer. And um, what they say in the book, and this is before social media and before podcasting, which does, as Alex pointed out, and I'm glad he mentioned that because I wouldn't have thought to mention either of those things. It adds a whole different element to the role of a radio producer. The role of a radio producer is an is actually an acronym, right? The P stands for psychologist, right? So you have to understand what the host is thinking what um, the guests are thinking, what the callers are thinking, and anticipate what the rest of the the staff is thinking. The R stands for researcher. You have to be able to research. uh, Let's say somebody brings up something about the Battle of uh, San Juan Hill. I I have to be able to go to a radio producer and say, hey, can you tell me what year the the, uh, Battle of San Juan Hill was? Can you tell me who fought at the Battle of San Juan Hill? Can you tell me how many people died at the Battle of San Juan Hill? You have to be able to do research in in a sense, in in essence, making the host an expert in in sixty seconds on any subject. The O stands for organizer, right? You have to organize the show. You have to determine what you're going to talk about at different times. Topic selection that's big. What's going to happen here? What's going to happen there? The D stands for director. You have to tell the engineer, the phone screener, the host. Make sure you uh, fire off this audio at this time. Make sure you uh, break at this time. Make sure you do this. You have to tell people what to do, which is in and of itself a whole separate set of uh, responsibilities. The – what do we are? Oh, D. D uh, – U. U stands for understudy, right? Uh, let's say the host uh, passes out drunk somewhere um, three boroughs away. You have to be prepared to step in and host the show at any given time. 
The C is for creative writer. You have to be able to write ad copy. You have to be able to write interview questions. You have to be able to write monologues. You have to be able to write absolutely anything that might take place in the three, four hours of a radio show. The E stands for uh, editor slash engineer. You have to be able to um, prepare to, to do a lot of the technical stuff that's necessary in editing audio and, and so forth. And the R really, and Alex alluded to this when I asked him to print out a form, which he did only marginally well yesterday. Uh, it was a one-page form, which somehow came out on two pages. I, I really, I still am not sure how that came to, out to be. But the R stands for right-hand man, right? The, um, the, you have to really be able to handle anything. Anything that a host asks for, and I, as a radio producer myself, have handled absolutely anything. I told a story at the Talkers Seminar recently where I spent a lot of time uh, one morning at at 7 o'clock in the morning cleaning up Curtis's vomit because the maintenance staff wasn't coming in until 9, and nobody else at the station really wanted to smell vomit for another two hours. So you have to be prepared to do absolutely anything, uh, including, you know, clean up a host vomit. So it, it really is an all-encompassing thing. Uh, it can involve booking guests. It can involve editing audio. It can involve organizing topics. It can involve writing questions. It can involve anything. So um, it's really an all-encompassing role. It's really a very tough role. It's one of those things where if you know how to be a radio producer and do it well, you can do almost anything else after that. You can go into marketing, go into sales, you can be a program director, you can be a host, you can do anything. All right, we're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Coming up 2 o'clock, we're going to bring you a very special panel of four very brilliant men, all of whom happen to be ex-attorneys and ex-felons. We're going to go through all the legal issues in the news. And in my experience, the only people that know more about the law than lawyers are people that have been sent to prison. So the people that know the most about the law, it stands to reason, are folks that have both been lawyers and sent to prison. But for now, we are doing, as we do each and every week, a... The Other Side of Midnight proudly presents Ask Frank... Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. Ask Frank anything. That's right. Answering your questions on any subject, let's say hello to Mark in Garden City. Hello, Mark. Hi, Frank. Hi, Mark. Frank, um, I wanted to ask about your uh, new uh, syndication status 
And I know it's Nevada. Is it only Nevada so or far, anywhere else? So far, it's just Nevada. The Nevada Talk Network, uh, which uh, which we're happy to be on in, uh, includes uh, some great stations out there. Uh, K-E-L-Y in uh, Eli, uh, K-D-J-J in Fallon, K-N-N-R in Reno, K-A-V-B in Hawthorne, and uh, K-P-K-K in, uh, in Amargosa Valley. So, so far, just Nevada. Frank, how did it come about that you were syndicated in Nevada? How did that happen? I, I don't know, honestly. I think, um, you know, our syndicator probably pitched it to, I don't know if they did a whole bunch of stations or just a couple of stations at once. And Nevada was the um, the one that, uh, or the, the Nevada Talk Network was the first entity to say, yeah, we want to carry this show. But uh, I think any station around the country that wants to carry it could. Have you heard from anybody yet? I know you were asking the other night for someone from Nevada to call in. Has anyone done that? Not a soul. I've heard more from Tumbleweed than I have from our listeners in Nevada. Wow, that's interesting. You'd think there'd be some transplanted New Yorkers out there that would hear that and call in. You, you know what? You'd think so, but I'll spend. I'll tell you, Mark, I'm not spending a lot of time thinking about it because the <laughs> show that I most enjoy doing is a New York radio show. So whether we're on in one market, three, or 900, I'm still doing a New York radio show. So that's the that's the bottom line. Much to the chagrin of uh, you know some of some of management, I'm sure. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Let me say hello to Igor in Fairfield, New Jersey. Hello, Igor. Greetings, Frank. Hey, listen, I really enjoyed your interview the other night with Julian Assange's brother. Thank you. And I want to ask you a question or two about that and what what your feelings are on him. I I got the impression that you felt Julian Assange is a member of the press and deserves some protection. If he ended up helping Chelsea Manning with the actual physical sort of break into the system – or if he if people got hurt as a result of his disclosure, because his brother seemed very adamant about both of those points. Well, do, I, do you I, think I, he's a member of the press? Yeah, uh, yes, I absolutely do. In fact, I think he's a much better journalist than uh, a lot of the folks that uh, that enjoy First Amendment protections for m- major American publications. Yes, I do th- absolutely think he's a member of the press. And Frank, is, do you think he's a hero or a villain or some, some, somebody in between? You know, that's such a good question. And I, I am very reluctant to um, stick anybody with that label of hero or villain. I think Julian Assange is a journalist. I think he's a good journalist. He does some things that I wouldn't do as, if I had a, uh, a media outlet. But uh, I, I'm not willing to say that he's a hero. I certainly don't think that he's a traitor. I, I, so my best answer is he's somewhere in between. I think he's an effective journalist. I think that um, the kind of work that he's done has been, on the whole, beneficial to the public. I think the public had a right to know about some of the war crimes the United States was committing. I think the American people had a right to know about what Hillary Clinton was telling donors behind closed doors. Uh, and uh, look, I, I so I don't think he's a hero, but I do think he's a journalist and an effective one. I appreciate your question. We're going to continue with your questions in just a moment. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight with an Ask Frank Anything as we start each and every Friday morning. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
Well, you can talk to me, even if we've never met. Technically, I suppose that would make me a stranger, but uh, I don't really consider myself that way. Uh, we are doing an Ask Frank Anything, where we give you an opportunity to ask a question about anything you like. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Deborah in New Jersey. Hello, Deborah. Hi, Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm great. Uh, Frank, I wanted to know when you were growing up as a teenager, Did uh, two questions. Did you share a room with any of your siblings? And did you have any posters on the wall and what they were? Uh, so, no. I w- I'm much older than my siblings because, um, okay. you know, I, I, uh, I'm i an only child of both of my parents. And then the, my my parents divorced and then my father remarried and uh, they had oh. children many years later. So none of them were really okay. close enough in age to share a room with me. Uh, but in terms of posters, most of my posters were wrestling themed. So I had oh. on uh, I had up uh, a Ric Flair poster. I had some maybe baseball themed posters at different oh. times. I had a, a King Kong Bundy poster. I oh. had a, uh, a the announcer um, Howard Cosell. I had on mostly oh. mostly wrestling and um, and and baseball themed posters. Okay, and I have one more question. Sure. You remember you had Rona Barrett on months yes. ago? Yes. Could you have her on again? She was so good. It was very interesting. She was good. Uh, that's a great suggestion, and I, I will yes. uh, I'll make a note to reach out to her next All week. Right. That's a great idea. Great. Thank you so much. Thank you. 800-848-9222. Let us say hello to Jimmy in New City. Hello, Jimmy. Jimmy. All right, Jimmy's got other things to do. 800-848-9222. George is in Rockland. Hello, George. Hi, how are you doing today? Great. Thanks for asking. All right. Um, I'm just calling in now with a question. Uh, you, had, you had a caller just a few minutes ago uh, who asked uh, why why the inflation is rated by 8 point something, and he would he would rate it like at a, 100% or more. Um. And uh, you you answered that the the reason why why it's that way because they excluded gas and food of the of the equation. Um, I and you you told that caller that you don't know why why it is that way. I would like to explain it to you if you have just a, like an extra. All right. Well, do you have a question, George? This is, is it is ask Frank anything rather than tell Frank anything. Oh. Okay, fine. Sorry. So, no, no, no. I, I I have no question. All right. Well, thank you anyway. Uh, let me say hello to Billy in Rockland. Hello, Billy. Yeah, how you doing? I got a few questions. Uh, what made Curtis throw up, Kubi or his ex-wife? <laughs> Probably some combination of both. All right. On the more serious side, do you consider John Brown a domestic terrorist? Oh, that is a good question. I'm going to go ahead and say yes. Yeah, if you commit violence, even if it's for a righteous cause, uh, for a political purpose, I don't know what you would call that other than terrorism. Yeah, I think uh, a lot of people like uh, lionized him in the North, you know, before the Civil War, and it made things worse, you know. Yeah. No, I I think that's I think you're right. Well, I'm not going to say it made things better or worse, but I think you're right. I think he has been sort of portrayed as a hero uh, when he is somebody that, let's face it, enjoyed killing slave owners. Maybe we'll do a whole John Brown show in the future. 800-848-9222. Larry is in Brooklyn. Hello, Larry. Hey, Frank. I want to. I think you have a pretty sophisticated uh, knowledge about uh, about the political side. Well, it goes to show you how little you know. Pull it up. I've sensed it. Polling specifically. So I want to ask you a question about polling. Mm-hmm. 
Don't you think that, that um, a poll, a national poll could be undertaken, and this would be a best time to do it, in, in, you know, in the midst of this January 6th frenzy, uh, a, a poll of the swing states to try to get an idea, a sense of whether, in fact, this, the presidential election was stolen. I mean, don't you think it could be a good, with the sophistication of polls today, that they could get some kind well, of a semblance I, I, of an idea? I don't, because... Um... I think you would see people largely answering that poll question along partisan lines. I, I think you'd see people that, um, that that give Donald Trump a lot of credibility kind of buying his version of events. And I think you'd think people that see people that don't give Trump a lot of credibility dismissing his his account of events. Plus, how would a rank and file person know whether the election was stolen or not? How? how no. what? A simple, a simple question is, did you vote for Trump or Biden? Right. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I think if you could find a way to somehow poll 150 million people, maybe that would be something. Uh, but um, I, I think it's logistically not as easy as you make it sound. And I'm not sure what purpose it serves at this point. They're not going to drag Biden from office and install Donald Trump. I mean, that ship has sailed. 800-848-9222. Bill is in Huntington. Hello, Bill. Okay, when when you eat an egg roll in a Chinese restaurant, what Chinese condiments do you involve yourself with for your food? Mm, um, it depends on my mood, honestly. Uh, I might throw a little soy sauce in there. Sometimes I will I will break it in half and throw a little soy sauce inside. Other times, and I know this is a little unorthodox even for me. I'll I'll dip it in some duck sauce, maybe even some of that hot Chinese mustard. Can I can I ask a question? I know the answer to. I, I mean, go ahead, Bill. It's your dime. Why is it called an egg roll? Uh, I don't know. Uh, the wrapper is an egg noodle. Oh, there you have it. See, the more you listen, the more you know. 800-848-9222. If you want to ask any more questions that you know the answer to, we have one, two, three, four open lines. Uh, We're doing an Ask Frank Anything for the hour. Uh, Whatever questions you have, now's the time to ask them. This is The Other Side of Midnight. We'll continue with your calls straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Selection. If you ever want to know what music we're playing on the program, uh, just join our Facebook group. Uh, just search on Facebook, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. That's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Uh, for now, I'm uh, doing my best to answer your questions on any subject. Whoever comes up with the most interesting and the most creative subject this hour, as determined by Alex Barnard, Ryan Modica, Kenneth, and Izzy, We'll send you a complimentary Other Side of Midnight t-shirt. 
meantime, uh, the f- the phones are all yours. 800-848-9222. Eddie is in New Jersey. Hello, Eddie. Hi, Frank. Hi. Uh, I want to ask you about, uh, you started the syndication in Nevada, in Nevada um, and your, your breaks started being at different times, and the top of the hour news is longer. Do they have to do with each other? Um. I you know what I think we're we're working on tweaking that a little bit. I think Monday is going to be a little bit uh, a little bit more, better of a schedule, but I, I think so. I think they do have something to do with one another. I mean, essentially, just so you know, Eddie, I just show up here. I break whenever they tell me to break. But the um, my understanding is that when you syndicate a show, all the affiliates have to have essentially a uniform clock. So they said, all right, this is the amount of time that you have at the top of the hour. This is the amount of time the network requires. And then um, this is when the program is going to start. But I think Monday we're going to make some changes that uh, I think that a lot of the listeners are going to be happy with. And I had a question about politics. Okay. Um, could you tell me who your favorite two uh, Republican governors, your favorite two Democrats, and the same with your worst favorite, the bottom two and of both parties of governors. Wait, in in the United States today? Yeah. Ooh. Um. Let's see. I, I'd have to. I don't know that I know. Uh, I don't know that I know all the governors. I'd have to say. Um, look. I, I mean, honestly, it's it's much it's much more difficult in some respects to name the two best governors because I think a lot of the governors. Are pretty are pretty mediocre, uh, honestly. I um, I think um, you know, uh, and a lot of my the the governors that I really liked are uh, not necessarily in uh, in office anymore. I really enjoyed the uh, both of the previous governors of um, of Montana. I thought they did a good job. I'm, I'm trying to think who who my favorite governor, yeah, like Steve Bullock, I liked. Uh, and even um, even his predecessor, uh, I liked a lot, Brian Schweitzer. My, my In other favorite words, every Democrat governor of uh, Montana. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, that's the that's the governors that I tend to like. I like. Governors that are blue governors in red states or red governors in blue states, because they've generally they've generally uh, not Chris Christie. He was never my favorite ever because they've generally. Sorry, who? Sununu in New Hampshire. Um, I don't know that he'd be my favorite. I I do like uh, Charlie Baker, the governor of Massachusetts. Would he be my favorite in all 50 states? Uh, I'm not I'm not so sure. I think, um, you know, I, I think the governor of Vermont is pretty interesting. Phil Scott, um, you know, I, even though he's new, I like a lot of what I see from Glenn Youngkin. Um, I, I think he's a pretty interesting guy. Look, a, a, in terms of worst governors, I think Kathy Hochul's pretty awful. I think Gavin Newsom's pretty awful. I think um, the governor of New Jersey, Phil Murphy, is pretty awful. Um, but I, I think, uh, you know, I don't know that there are many governors that are, that are better than them. Uh, I, um, I, I don't know. I, I don't know that I have a strong feelings about my top two currently favorite or least favorite, but, uh, the, the couple that I'm previously, that I'm favorably disposed to are the handful that I named. 800-848-9222. Gino is in Brooklyn. Hello, Gino. What's up? I'm out with my girl, Jen, with bar hopping, and she brought up a side nice. question that I can't answer, but I know you can. So I'm going to let her ask it, 
So what you think about a particular sci-fi show. Now she doesn't want to ask it. She wants to know what you think about the show Orville. So I love the Orville. And uh, I haven't seen the most recent season yet, uh, but I'm looking forward to seeing it. I think um, the Orville is almost like what Star Trek The Next Generation would be like if they made it today. I, I think it's great. I, I think it's uh, very clever sci-fi with a uh, with a great sense of humor. Now, I happen to like science fiction, and I happen to like Seth MacFarlane a lot, so in a lot of respects, I'm the, the target audience for it. But I think the stories are great. I think the acting is great. I think, uh, I think the special effects are great. I think it's a really fun show. But is it a sci-fi show or just a goofy comedy? Yeah, well, it's both. I mean, I don't, the two aren't mutually exclusive. Like, you you know, it, it takes place in the future and in space. So if that's not science fiction, you know, I don't know what is. You could have comedy science fiction, like The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, or you could have uh, you could have uh, lighthearted science fiction, like Doctor Who or The Orville. All right, I got you. Fair enough, sir. Thank you very much. All right, thank you, Gino. Tell your girl to come to the phone next time. 800-848-9222. Jerry's in Manhattan. Hello, Jerry. Frank, hi. hi. I'd like to know in the last 10 or 15 years, the, the longest length of time you've gone without an alcoholic drink, and also if currently you fear cirrhosis, and also have you ever smoked pot? Uh, no, I've never, I've never smoked pot. Uh, do I fear cirrhosis? I don't. And uh, longest length of well, every Lent, I uh, every Lenten season, I go forty days. So I would say, uh, I would say about forty days is probably the longest in recent le- memory. I remember maybe about ten years ago, I lost a bet, and uh, I think I went four or five months without drinking alcohol. Um, wow. So, so I would say uh, every year I do forty days where I'm dry. Uh, and a lot of times it's, you know, I'll do 30 or 40 days if I'm on some sort of diet, you know, then. But um, but no, I've never smoked marijuana. Good questions, though. 800-848-9222. Let me say hello to Jim in New City. Hello, Jim. All right, Frank. We got cut off earlier, but I guess that's a funny one with uh, Curtis is probably leading these guys on to letting you know about your pretty, I don't think, existent alcoholic life. I mean, you're just a normal Kind of guy, you know what I mean? Um, well, on many, now, th- on many things, I'm not sure normal is one. Well, that's fair enough. Um, <laughs> now, don't be offended. All the um, people in the Witness Protection Program out in Nevada and wherever you're syndicated, congratulations, by the way. Thank you. You know, they can't call in because they're all hiding. You know that, right? <laughs> so, fair you know, enough. Can't get in, you know, they're sleeping under an agave cactus somewhere in the desert and, you know, whatever. But the people with the money out there that are backing you, they know you have a great show. And the rest of the population. Yeah, the the, the station you know group, I mean? the station group at the Nevada Talk Network. They seem like uh, like great guys. They've been very supportive of the show, uh, very complimentary on social media. So uh, happy to be with them. Uh, but it's what a great show? Fun. Thank you, Jim. What, what was your question? Because I want to try and at least right, squeeze well, in one more. Just, all right. Uh, then I guess I just had a comment on something else, but I'll, I'll let that go now. I just want to know what the one thing I know we talked about it one time before. What is the one thing that I know Curtis rides you a lot? What is the one thing that got your goat, that he really got to you? And I don't want to start a feud, and you don't have to answer this, but also a rhetorical, like, you could come back and say something to him at this point to give him a little nudge, if you'd like. But if you want to just hang up and say, I'm not touching that stuff. Well, uh, so, uh, wait, the the thing that Curtis has said that— Yeah, you know how he's always playing the games, and I get it. You know, we laugh about it, and he, he is so funny, like, what he says, and he's always riding it. You know what I mean? Is this something that really did? Uh, no, honestly, no, honestly. I, I mean, if there has been, I've, I'm sure I've mentioned it at the time 
Um, but uh, no, honestly, Curtis could say whatever he wants about right. me. I, I love Curtis. We're very close friends, and uh, he's been a very big supporter of mine uh, within within the radio business. I, I don't know that I'd be here today well, without Curtis, so he could say whatever he wants about me. It wouldn't bother me in the slightest. I like that because I'm an insider kind of guy. I know very – I listen all the time, and I know that. And I didn't want to start something, and I said, I'll give you the out. You don't have to answer that, but – um. Yeah, thank, I, I would tell you if Curtis said something. I love when he. I love it because I think it's hilarious. Yeah, you know well, I mean? thanks. It's so yeah, much fun. I, I appreciate that. I, I think uh, he's very funny when he does it as well. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Kathy is in the East Village. Hello, Kathy. Kathy. Hi, Frank. How are you? I'm. I'm great. Great. Um, I have a couple of questions about movies. Like I watch these weird movies. One, for instance, was called The Bay, and it was uh, done in 2009 about... Uh... Uh, Kathy, I'm going to have to put you on hold because we're, we're out of time. If you want to hold or call back, you're welcome to. Uh, gentlemen, do we have a winner for best question? Gina from Brooklyn with What Does a Producer Do? Gina from Brooklyn, call back, 800-848-9222. We'll give you a prize. Hey, we have a panel of uh, former lawyers and former felons coming up momentarily. Until next hour... In the words of the great Bob Barker, help control the pet population and get your dog or cat spayed or neutered. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Thanks for listening. Happy Friday. Hopefully your weekend is off to a good start, at least on the East Coast. Uh, For those of you listening on the West Coast, you have no idea what you have to look forward to come Friday. So far, Friday is off to a great start, let me tell you. All right. uh, There are a plethora of legal issues in the news, and in my experience, there is uh, there's nobody that knows the legal system like an attorney, except maybe a former attorney who has also gone to prison. We are lucky enough to assemble three of my favorite former attorneys and ex-felons, uh, and we've discussed their cases before. I'm not going to get into the nitty-gritty of each of their individual cases, even though each one is a pretty interesting story in their own right. Uh, but um, instead, we'll just ask them to say uh, where they went to law school and which prison they spent the most time at. Uh, I'm joined in studio first by my friend Andrew McKenna, the deputy director of the National Council on Alcoholism and Drug Dependence in Westchester and the author of the book, a uh, great memoir. I was just recommending it to some people earlier tonight. Sheer Madness. Andrew, law school and prison, please. Albany Law School of Union University and uh, two prisons, um, Elkton, Ohio and uh, Petersburg, Virginia. Excellent. A very expansive response. All right. And again, you don't have to name every prison because it's only a, a four-hour program. Just the prison that you spent the most time on. Also very pleased to welcome uh, a fellow that's represented me on a lot of election law-related issues, a fellow that's been uh, very well-regarded as an attorney and very, very well-known in the New York area, Richard Luthman. Uh, Richard, law school and prison, please. 
New York Law School, and I'll say uh, Brooklyn Metropolitan Detention Center. All right. Uh, and, uh, of course, Dom Crispino, who uh, last time he was here joined us in studio, but apparently the legal system has some has some restrictions on uh, what he's able to do at uh, 2 o'clock in the morning on the East Coast. We certainly understand that. Dom, um, law school in prison, please. Good morning, Frank. Uh, Georgetown University Law Center uh, and Clinton uh, Correctional Facility Annex in Dannemora. All right. Okay. Well, look, I, I'm going to defer to you, Dom, as uh, I think probably the best law school in the bunch, not that I'm much of an authority uh, on law schools. Uh, the Supreme Court has been making uh, a whole lot of waves, and uh, they just wrapped up their term, probably the most controversial and consequential term the Supreme Court has had in at least 20 years, possibly 50 years. Uh, give me your take on um, – we've covered this abortion decision in the in the Hobbs case – a great deal. Uh, we've covered the uh, gun, the concealed carry law as it relates to New York a great deal. Give me your take on a, a subject that we haven't covered all that much, what the Supreme Court did on the EPA and what that portends for the future of federal regulation. Okay, Frank. And uh, I, I believe that that may be the most consequential case that the, the court has decided in terms of federal power in a long time. Uh, it's West Virginia versus EPA. And what the court has done is it's taken a stranglehold now on the administrative state. You know, we have government agencies that, that regulate, provide rules. They're really the guts of this huge federal bureaucracy. And what happens is Congress will pass laws like the Superfund Act or whatever it may be, and these agencies bring it to life. Um, so what the court has done here is said, listen, you agencies are going way too far in what you're doing with these things. So they came up with something called the major questions doctrine. So in, in an area of regulation where it's a major question, these agencies can't go off on their own now. So they want uh, the, the, uh, both the Obama administration and the Biden administration now uh, wanted to go further in terms of uh, regulating uh, electrical power uh, under the uh, – you know, with this so-called climate change. And the court has said, no, no, meeting this statute, you do not have the power to do this administratively. Now, this is a, this is a problem that also goes further than that. When you see Biden issues executive orders, Trump issued executive orders, Obama issued executive orders, you know, that's, it, it, they're, trying to, they're trying to do stuff that they don't have the power to do. And this instance here has been a long time in coming. Uh, there's administrative law would have deferred to these agencies for over 40, sometimes 50 years now, and they've been called to task. It's, the, I believe, the most consequential decision of that court in this, in this term. Wow. Uh, Richard, let me uh, invite you to comment on whatever Dom uh, said there. Uh, give me your reaction to the, to the decision, and what do you think this portends for the future of uh, executive power and administrative power going forward? Well, uh, Dom is spot on. Uh, the there are there are other issues in that case besides the major questions doctrine, which relate to uh, separation of powers and relate to states' rights as well. Uh, a big one is that you know, Congress makes the law, not the not the administrative states. So there has to be uh, a relationship or, or a, a textual commitment uh, to what these administrative bodies are trying to do. Uh, so they just can't go out on their own with an unfettered discretion and and promulgate rules. Uh, especially when it affects states. And West Virginia 
uh, was really affected because West Virginia is a big coal state, and it's a it's a, 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 a that's a lot of its economy. These these new rules that were being uh, put into place by the EPA actually penalized that this non any non green energy sources, and there was really no congressional uh, stamp of approval for that. And uh, so this is going to have a, a huge effect for uh, how how these administrative agencies can can do things uh, without any uh, any endorsement by Congress, and what it can do when it really affects states. And it's going to carry well beyond the EPA. It's going to carry on all throughout uh, any area of administrative law. Administrative rulemaking. All right, Andrew, uh, it's going to be an awfully boring hour if the three of you guys agree <laughs> on everything. Uh, give me a little dissent here. Well, Do we I'll, have any, any dissents? I'll say this. This uh, term has probably had more to do with separation of powers and reining people in and, and having the different branches stay in their lane. I'll, I'll go back to, to overturning Roe v. Wade. The, the court said it perfectly. That was a court legislating the 1972 opinion uh, was awful in Roe v. Wade. And as I said, when we spoke before, it was very, very easy for Alito to just slice that opinion up, regardless of what you agree with. And same situation with the EPA ruling. This is uh, a super conservative court. They don't like big government and they're really reining people in in reining, reining the different branches in, uh, just as they should be, just as, as the Constitution provides. So I, I think it's a good thing in a sense. Uh, Richard, let me uh, get your take on what we're seeing in Georgia. There's been a lot made of some subpoenas issued from a grand jury in Georgia to some people close to uh, President Trump as part of the investigation into President Trump's conduct after the uh, 2020 election. Now, uh, Lindsey Graham, one of the people that has been subpoenaed, says he's not going to comply with this subpoena in Georgia. Our colleague uh, on WABC, Rudy Giuliani, has also been subpoenaed. Whether or not you agree with with the scope of what this Georgia grand jury is doing, is this a wise thing that you would advise people to just disregard subpoenas? Well, it it goes to a question about legitimacy of of courts and legitimacy of of, uh, law enforcement and, and investigations. To a certain extent, we're seeing a lot of politically motivated uh, issues here, especially now that we have a, a, you know, this election year in 2022, but 2024 is clearly looming. So it, it, it's coming to a point where they're, they're, they're politically convened grand juries. Uh, we talked before about uh, about how in New York you had uh, Letitia James talk about we're going to get Trump, we're going to get him. Well, Georgia, you have kind of the same thing. You, ha- you have uh, it's not not Democrats, but you have actually uh, uh, centrist Republicans or, or non-Trump Republicans, non-MAGA Republicans that are in control over there, and uh, aided by by the Democrats. Uh, and you know, they're, they're I guess they're going to try to make life di- life difficult for for Trump and his allies. The, the problem that they have, I think, is uh, and anybody that's seen Two Thousand Mules. Uh, you know, I think Stacey Abrams is, is might be one of the biggest uh, losers if they really start digging into 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 that election. Uh, and if and if they give Trump a, a well, into the 2020 election or the 2018 election, the, the 2020 election, the 2020 election, the, the, the issue with this subpoena 
uh, is that they're they're asking about stuff that that that, that Trump was doing. Well, let, let's put aside the the two thousand mules thing because we're going to do a whole separate show on, on that, and uh, there's a lot of controversy over that. But just get getting to the legality of what Lindsey Graham is doing here in disregarding the subpoena, understanding that you don't think that the uh, grand jury in Georgia is doing the right thing. Is it okay for people, senators or not, to just disregard subpoenas from a grand jury? Oh, no, they, they have the power to haul them in. That, that's the thing. The question becomes at that point, uh, you know, is it, 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 it becomes a, political, a politically motivated prosecution defense. That, that's really what it becomes. Is there an authority uh, to bring somebody in? And they could always go and, they, and, arrest, and arrest them. They, 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 the, the power of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, validly issued subpoena when, when somebody, uh, you know, thumbs their nose at, at, at the court uh, or at, at a, at a – at a subpoenaing, uh, subpoenaing authority, then it's uh, they always have the power to bring to bring them in. And That's they have the power. In, not to interrupt you, Richard, but great point. And they have the power to also Graham has the power to try to quash the subpoena. And was he within his rights to discuss uh, with state officials the processes and what procedures around administering elections? And it, his attorneys say that they do, but you know he has to have that adjudicated, ruled on by a court, and if he doesn't, then he gets hauled in. So is it a good idea? Generally not. If you get a subpoena, you show up, but he's the chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, and I think there's a lot more historically at stake here. Dom Crispino, uh, putting aside the politics of it, uh, how do you see the legality of this situation in Georgia playing out? Oh, what, specifically on the subpoena? Yeah, well, I mean, the grand jury investigation in general and the subpoena specifically. Well, the uh, subpoena specifically, uh, I mean, it's a state court subpoena uh, issued out of a county. So, I mean, Graham can can sit there and wait. I mean, it's obviously, as the guys indicated, uh, they're moving to quash it. He's doing the right thing, which means he's saying it's not legitimate. Um, But, you know, if they don't do anything to to, uh, enforce it beyond their boundaries, I mean, it's a a state court in Georgia. They'd have to get a state court where he is to – to authenticate it, to get him over there in the first place. But how that's going to play out, listen, eventually he's going to show up. Inevitably it'll happen. I mean, I, I don't think that the uh, the scope of the investigation, although it's politically motivated, obviously, uh, I, don't, I don't think that it's, uh, it's so frivolous that uh, he wouldn't be made to show up. Um, and with regard to the investigation itself, I mean, listen, we all know that uh, prosecutors could indict a ham sandwich. If they wanted to indict Trump, I mean, he, he said some stuff that's off the reservation. I mean, clearly. Uh, if they wanted to indict him, they could. The question here is not whether they could, but whether they should. Um, and, that, and that's a political question at that point. So um, we, the, the world waits at this point to see what happens. That they do. All right. Uh, we're going to continue with uh, Andrew McKenna, Dom Crispino, and Richard Luthman in just a moment. If you have questions, uh, keep in mind everybody on this panel has been disbarred, except for me, who's never been admitted to the bar. So uh, I would not take any legal advice from the four of us. But uh, if you have questions, uh, these guys certainly have opinions about them. 800-848-9222. That's 1-800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. 
Friends of mine, uh, three very bright men joining me for the hour, Richard Luthman, Dom Crispino, and Andrew McKenna. All three of them happen to be uh, ex-attorneys and ex-felons, and uh, all three very experienced in the ways of the law uh, from both perspectives. Uh, gentlemen, while, uh, while I have the three of you here, let me get you to weigh in on uh, a crime that has generated a, a great deal of interest and a lot of uh, attention around the country. And this is this bodega owner that was attacked, that was stabbed when his store was attacked, and he subsequently shot his, this is out of New York City. He subsequently shot one of his uh, one of his attackers. He's now charged and killed him. Uh, he's now charged with murder one. He is out on bail. It seems like the community has sort of rallied uh, to his his defense. Even Mayor Eric Adams, uh, who uh, and we'll get to this in just a minute, has not really been reluctant to comment on a whole host of legal issues in this city. Even he's saying that uh, essentially that uh, this fellow shouldn't be picked on. Uh, Andrew McKenna, give me your take on this case on this case involving this bodega owner who's now charged with homicide one and now out on bail. Well, I think it's reasonable to say he feared for his life. There's no indication this was racially motivated or a hate crime of any type. And it's a tragedy. I, I, I believe people are fed up with the increase in crime. And that goes for, you know, the law enforcement to bodega owners and the uptick is, is alarming. The point is he didn't know what the next step was. He didn't know whether let's assume he didn't know whether he was going to live or die. And yes, he brought a gun to a knife fight and you know, that'll be the issue. I believe that's probably what's going to be litigated, but it's a tough thing. It's a, it's an indication that people I believe are fed up with crime and not feeling protected, not feeling safe. Dom, it was interesting uh, to hear Governor Patterson on the Cats at Night show yesterday saying uh, that he doesn't think there's a jury in New York City that's ever going to convict this guy of murder one. I, I know you've been charged at various times by the Manhattan DA's office, not the current DA. But, uh, I mean, currently, uh, the DA Alvin Bragg has got to realize that this is going to be a tough conviction for him. Why would he be seeking such a tough charge here in murder one? Why not seek something, I don't know, reckless endangerment or murder two or uh, involuntary manslaughter or something else? Well, it is murder two, Frank, because in New York, murder one, I think, is uh, uh, killing a police officer or a multiple homicide. The catch-all in New York for everything else uh, above manslaughter is murder two, whether it be reckless or intentional. That's what the cops wrote it up as, and that's what they carried it over. The one, the one lesson that I think we're going to take from this case is that I, 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 I think it's true that uh, no juror would convict them. However, the law in the state of New York is a horror show on the law of justification, which is what we call self-defense. Everybody else calls it self-defense. New York calls it justification. The, the Bernard Getz case established a, 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 a two-pronged test for self-defense. You have to subjectively believe that you are in imminent danger of, of losing your life. And B, then objectively it's looked at 
from a reasonable person. So it's not only what you believe, it's what a jury sees as a reasonable person. Now, the DAs easily manipulate that. Self-defense claims are very rarely won in New York. Uh, You ask me in this instance, it should be clear that the guy is not convicted. But the the fallback position on any time there's something like this is to charge the highest crime, Mm. which would be murder murder in the second degree, which carries between 15 to life to 25 to life in state prison. And that's what they do. Now, usually what happens in a case like that is – He's not charged yet specifically because they have not indicted him yet. So the next step will be presenting to the case to the grand jury. Whether he will actually be charged with that crime going forward and have to go to trial after an indictment will depend upon how the DA sells the case to the grand jury. Um, you know that many times they'll have police shootings in New York, and it looks questionable. Well, a lot. that's the same thing. It's how the case is sold to that grand jury, how they're charged, how the evidence is presented, the tenor of the presentation. So this, this bodega guy is in the hands of Alvin Bragg and his staff of how they want to do it. If they want to really charge him, they can indict him because the law is murky. But they may not want to because the, uh, the, the political – backlash from that might be too much of him at this point, considering how the bad start that Bragg had in the first place. Richard, how do you see this? Uh, I think that uh, political backlash is, is, is huge. If, if you saw the, what the, the early uh, evidence that came out here, uh, the, I, I believe that the, the girlfriend of the guy who was killed actually went into the bodega beforehand and, and pulled a knife on the bodega owner, left, and then the boyfriend comes back and and the, the bodega owner knows that 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 he has he has a weapon that he has a knife uh, because it uh, it was taken out before. Uh, I think it's very clear it's a self defense claim. I think that uh, I, I think that the the issue is that uh, they ha- they have a, an association of bodega owners, and of all the groups that they that they contacted, I heard that today they contacted the NRA to try to find some help. For bodega owners, because they feel like uh, uh, Bragg and and and, uh, and Adams and and uh, the NYPD and the DAs aren't protecting bodega owners. When you have a guy who's got a rap sheet a mile long, uh, and he's the one who's being quote unquote protected by the system, and this bodega owner who's trying to protect his life and his livelihood ends up in Rikers Island. So I, I think that the, the political issues here are going to make it very, very difficult for, for, for this case to be prosecuted as murder too, or prosecuted really in, in any way, shape or form uh, for, for, a, for a big charge. And uh, Richard, you know, I alluded to Eric Adams speaking out on uh, behalf of the uh, bodega owners uh, defense. He's all, he's really not been hesitant to speak out on any crimes that are taking place in New York city. The police had arrested uh, the person that had purportedly assaulted Rudy Giuliani and essentially Eric Adams loudly proclaimed that the DA, somebody that I know you have a lot of experience with, uh, should have been uh, charging Giuliani for filing a false police report. Putting aside the merits of these individual cases, the bodega owner or the supermarket incident involving Rudy Giuliani, is it wise for the mayor, the guy that picks the police commissioner, the guy that appoints all the criminal court judges, the guy that Uh, the police department reports to is it wise for the mayor to be commenting on all these high profile criminal cases well he he basically 
commented and didn't comment on, on this case. If, if you saw what he said about Bragg, he, he kind of alluded to the fact that, that Bragg had his, his own uh, prosecutorial discretion and didn't go so far as he did with the Giuliani uh, case and with some of the other cases. So in a certain, uh, to a certain extent, he, 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 had, he wasn't as, as, as vocal as to what, what, what should be done with this case. That being said, uh, you know, he does uh, comment a lot about, uh, you know, pending uh, criminal matters or, or issues of the day. Now, the, the question becomes, is, is he the guy that, the, that should be doing it? Well, he's the mayor of the city of New York, uh, and 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 at the end of the day, a lot of the, the decisions are 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 political decisions that are being made. Uh, so you know, he he gets he ru- he runs the risk of putting his foot in his mouth, which he's done several times already. But you know, I I I you know I don't see him. Uh, I, you know, I I don't in, in in a case like this and some of the other cases where he's weighed in, I think he's he's uh, he's he's well within his rights to say what he said. But is he influencing the decisions of prosecutors or police officers, investigators underneath him? In the Marine Corps, we call it command influence. A commanding officer is basically the convening authority in a criminal case in the military, meaning they essentially are the person who makes the decision whether to charge. They're not lawyers. They're not prosecutors. But then they're supposed to stay out of it. And we saw the same thing with, with, with Clinton when he was in office and the different issues. Um, my gut tells me that he should st- stand back. Number one, he won't put his foot in his mouth, which we've seen him do from time to time, but really not influence these decisions for the people that are underneath him. That's yeah, it. I should mention also that Andrew is uh, not only a Marine Corps veteran, but a veteran of uh, of the Air Force. Dom, uh, what about you? Uh, any 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 comment on the mayor being so bold as to uh, comment on ongoing criminal investigations? <laughs> bold. He puts his finger up in the air. He saw the which way the wind was going, and uh, you know he wants to be part of it. I mean, that's that's Eric Adams, isn't it? I mean, it, it when you really break it down, and. Uh, he, yeah, he might be trying to influence it because that's the way the uh, the popular opinion is. I mean, in this case, I have no problem with it. In other cases, uh, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I don't know. Um, but yeah, that's um, I'm, I'm laughing at that one. <laughs> All right, we're going to take your calls next. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. Dom Crispino is here. Andrew McKenna is here. Richard Luthman is here. This is the other side of midnight. A whole bunch of other legal issues to tackle in mere moments. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano, joined uh, for our legal panel by Andrew McKenna, Dom Crispino, and Richard Luthman, uh, three ex-lawyers and ex-felons. Uh, by the way, I want to uh, correct something that I didn't realize I said earlier, but uh, apparently in that bodega incident, I said that the bodega owner had shot uh, the person that he killed. He had not. He had stabbed the person that he killed. 
ultimately, for the person that's dead, you're still just as dead, whether you were stabbed or you're shot. But uh, I want to clarify that. Uh, 800-848-9222. I'm going to get to your questions in just a second. Uh, But I want to get uh, you gentlemen to collectively comment on uh, the latest when it comes to Derek Chauvin. This is the officer in the George Floyd case. He's now been sentenced to an additional 21 years in a a federal civil rights case for the uh, death of George Floyd. Uh, Richard, I'll begin with you on on this one. What was your take? Uh, Were you expecting this? Is this a little too much, given the fact that he had already been previously sentenced for causing George Floyd's death, or is this about par for the course? Uh, It's not. It's going to change a couple things for him. Uh, They they did a deal that he's going to get the same amount of time concurrent with with the the state and the feds, but he's going to end up going to a federal prison. Uh, which for him is going to mean more time because in the feds you you end up doing uh, like 85 percent of your time as opposed to the state where it's you know 60 or 65 i think in, 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 uh, where he was so that's one issue number two because he's got the, the state case uh in in the feds he's going to have something called a detainer and that means that his security level is going to be a little bit higher uh the claim is that he's going to be a little bit safer in in the federal system uh, but I, I I can't see how he's going to be safe anywhere uh, because he's he's you know he's going to be a target no matter where he goes. I think that he was in in segre- segregation uh, segregation or in uh, protective custody where he was in in, in Minnesota. I think he's going to have to be there uh, in federal prison too, unless he's in a. I don't think he's going to qualify for to go to a a camp because of that detainer. Uh, so even if he's in a low, you're going to have guys that are going to want to take a shot at him and uh, and and uh, go after him. Put it that way, Andrew. I would add too that he has nowhere to go once he goes to prison. He it's not like he can try to get in with the AB, the, the Aryan Brotherhood, or a white supremacist group, uh, or you know white nationalist group. Nobody's going to want him. No one's going to want to touch him. So he has really literally protection probably from nobody. And, you know, I was in isolation. I was in the shoe, special housing unit, the whole whatever you want to call it. Is that because you had been a prosecutor? They were concerned about retribution against you or were you there for some other reason? I got in a fight. Uh So (laughs) um, I can hear you laughing. But it's – but it's going to be a miserable existence, you know, state or Fred. And, and Fed is no safer by any means than, than state prison, uh, especially where he's going. So um, I don't think I think it was normal to answer your question, Frank. I think it was normal that uh, the feds charged him with the civil rights violations and crimes um, and they ran a concurrent. He will have the detainer, um, but. You know, that'll that might apply after he does probably 80, you know, maybe 90 percent of the sentence. Um, and then the question becomes, you know, could he ever go to a camp mm. within the federal system? And with violent crime, I don't believe he could. Anyhow. Uh, Dom, your take on this Derek Chauvin case. The odd thing about this is that they had offered uh, they had worked out a deal, I think, previously. And I think it called for about the same kind of sentence and the judge rejected it, I think. And now we now we end up imposing something that's you know pretty much the same. Uh, my head spins sometimes with this stuff. Uh, yeah, I agree with the guys. He's going to have a, a difficult time. I mean, uh, his 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 best outlook would be being totally segregated, and you know that's even sometimes when you're segregated, things happen. So 
it's going to be a rough road for the next, uh, what do you got, 21, the next uh, almost 18 years more. Mm. Uh, that's for sure. Uh, that's for sure. All right. A lot of folks have, have a lot of questions for you. We're going get, to get to as many questions as we can. 800-848-9222. That's uh, 1-800-848-9222. Nine two uh, two two. Uh, I'm going to go to folks in the order that they have been holding. Uh, looks like Bill in Plainview has been waiting the most patiently. Hello, Blit Bill. Hi, Frank. I thought you were Curtis. I almost went to sleep. <laughs> but <laughs> I must say, one of your guests said, "Does Trump have the right to discuss? Don't we all have the right to discuss and talk?" Um, yeah, I'll let anybody that wants to answer that answer that. I mean, I, I don't of think. Course, uh, um, of course he, of, of course he does, but of course, you know, but you know, well, what, he's he's actually got diarrhea of the mouth and has always had it, and he he's his own worst enemy. He puts his foot in his mouth on a daily basis, and uh, he's he's talked himself into a lot of these investigations. So, I mean, I, so I that not uh, right to discuss and talk no, about what course. you want. No, that's his right. Okay, because you made it sound I, like it was a crime. He doesn't have the right to discuss, but of course he does. I didn't make the comment, first of all, but he has the right to discuss anything he wants to. Yeah, I don't know that anybody here said that, uh, Bill, because I, I don't I don't remember hearing that. But then again, I don't remember hearing myself say that the bodega owner shot his assailant instead of stabbed him. So uh, my memory's not to be trusted. 800-848-9222. Tom is in the Bronx. Hello, Tom. Hey, yeah, well, you, you changed the issue with the um, bodega guy. I was going to say the only issue he would have had is if he had a license or not, because it, it was definitely been justified you know, in my uh, view. And the two men that are with you, uh, did they ever answer the question? Three. With, what, three. Okay, did anybody ever answer the question as to whether the um, subpoena was legit? I mean, can the congressman... Are they, are they immune from them, or can they be have to answer subpoenas too? Yeah, so gentlemen, my understanding of what you guys all said was that uh, the subpoena is just as binding on Lindsey Graham as it is for everybody else. Is that right? Yeah, they, they have they have the authority to to issue a subpoena, and he has the he has the right to go in and to get it quashed to challenge it. Uh, now, there's no uh, real a, a, a privilege, you know. There's no privilege for for sitting senators that, that that's going to uh, to uh, go beyond a hardship or anything like that that he can bring under, under state law. I don't think there's anything like like an executive privilege or anything like that that that, that he's going to be able to rely on. So uh, it's going to be he's going he's to try to quash the subpoena uh, uh, under under normal terms. Uh, Mike is in St. James. Hello, Mike. Uh- Congressman Schiff's investigation down in Washington. What can he do to Donald Trump at the outcome of this investigation? Is that the January 6th committee or is that a separate investigation? January 6th. Right. Okay. Well, it's not just Adam Schiff. Uh, he's not the chairman of that committee. But um, uh, but no, uh, my understanding, and I'll let these guys uh, for add further, but they have no prosecutorial power. I mean, I guess if they want, they could hold him in contempt of Congress the way they're holding Peter Navarro in contempt of Congress. Beyond that, gentlemen, even if uh, all the members of the committee were really upset with President Trump, I mean, they can't impeach him a third time, can they? I'd like to see it. <laughs> <laughs> no, they can't. <laughs> Doesn't mean they won't. <laughs> All right. Eight, eight, the, the, good. The, the big issue there is that uh, it, what you're seeing in that committee, you would never see in a courtroom. 
right. there, there, there's no hearsay uh, rules on that committee. You know, some of the testimony that's that that's given is is not uh, testimony that you'd ever hear in a court of law. So uh, you, know, you have to you have to uh, you have to look at it that way. It's really a, a political uh, show trial, if anything. That's what it's a produced event. Right, with no it's no not, teeth whatsoever. Sorry, Richard, but yeah, yeah. You know. Diane in New Jersey. Hello, Diane. Yeah, and now for something completely different. Uh, why, why is it so hard to sue a dentist? Like I, I, I got injured by a dentist. I have like a half of my, like, like the whole my whole lip and and my teeth are still numb. And and I couldn't find a, a lawyer that would, even lawyers that specialize in that. Nobody wanted to help me with that. Is there? A, is, why is it so hard to sue dentists? Richard, you've had some unorthodox lawsuits in your time as an attorney. Any any thoughts on that one? Well, you, you have a, a, a lot of issues uh, with the state law. I don't know what state you said you were in New York, New Jersey, but New but, Jersey. but a lot of times, oh, yeah, a lot of times there's, there's protections uh, for these uh, professional groups, uh, especially doctors, dentists, and so you need to have uh, what's called an, uh, an affidavit of merit that's that's put mm-hmm. in with that's in addition to uh, uh, you know the, your allegations that you make. So you have to get somebody yeah. to sign off and say that there there is an issue. Uh, usually somebody in that profession, and it's hard to, hard to get that done a lot of times. Right. Uh, and there's also, uh, you know, you have a statute of limitations. You only have a, a short amount of time uh, to bring a case. That could be, you know, three years in most cases where you're injured, but a lot of times it's shorter for malpractice. Sometimes it's, it's it can be two years, or it could be uh, two years and six months, or it could be a different amount of time depending on, on what happens. So there are a lot of state law protections that that, that kind of stack it uh, in favor of uh, the medical professionals. Uh, anything you want? Fact. Anything you want to add there, Dom? No, I, 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 I think you hit it right on the head. I mean, there, there, there's special statutes that protect them and special standards set for them. I guess they don't want to make it easy to sue dentists and doctors. All right. Uh, a couple more questions, and then I have a few other issues I want to go over with you guys. Uh, Chris is in the Catskills. Hello, Chris. Epic Radio, that is a segue to my question. So can a person who has legal standing to file a wrongful death lawsuit against an oral surgeon, can they file that suit pro per in the state of New York? The law has been changed recently in New York where it's three and a half years from two and a half years. This was just passed recently. Uh, Dom, I'll begin with you if you want to handle that one. Uh, I'm not aware of the recent changes. Uh, I, I believe you can always file a case pro se as long as you meet all the other legal requirements in pleading. If you don't, you'll get a motion to dismiss and they'll send you on your way. So, um, of course, you could file on your own. I, I see no reason why not. But I'm not giving advice here. Yeah, well, and I want to give... – go ahead. <laughs> can I it ask sounds like you have a surrogate's court issue too, uh, that you said that it was a wrongful death case. So that sounds like you're going to have to have an estate uh, opened up, and you have to be the person that has the authority to open up the estate. So you have an issue yeah, there. Yeah. So, so legal standing. Yeah. So I have that. But um, so the other question I have: Do you have to file the case in the county where the where they the medical practice was, or can you file the case in the in the Supreme Court of the county where the um, decedent resided? Well, that that becomes a venue issue, and that that that's uh, that's going to be fact specific based upon 
uh, whether or not uh, there's a hook for that uh, that 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 person, the the doctor, the dentist in that in that in that other county. You know, the case isn't going to get thrown out, you know, of the court, but it might get transferred to another county if it's more appropriate to be in another county or the county you select doesn't have the proper hook. All right. Thank you, Chris. Uh, 800-848-9222. We're going to continue. Andrew McKenna, Dom Crispino and Richard Luthman. I want to stress, by the way, that um, you, people should not necessarily call with specific legal questions about their specific situation. I mean, that's a good thing to consult with your own attorney about or, um, you know, any of the many uh, pro se legal services that are out there. The the last thing I would suggest is if you have a legal question pertaining to your own situation is to call a radio show at uh, uh, 10 to 3 in the morning and ask three people that have been disbarred. That is a surefire way to have a case <laughs> not go your way. Uh, we're going to continue uh, – <laughs> three of my it is, it is a, it is a, ask Frank Morano anything. That's right. That's true. Eight hundred eight four eight nine two two two. This is the other side of midnight. Straight ahead. The other side of midnight. It's the other side of midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, for the hour, joined by Andrew McKenna, Richard Luthman, and uh, Dominic Crispino. All three happen to be uh, former attorneys and ex-felons. Uh, interesting story, and it seems like so many of the legal stories we deal with uh, touch upon drugs. And this one literally deals with uh, touching upon drugs. Evidently, according to this story in The Defector, cops are having literal panic attacks upon encountering fentanyl uh, because they believe they're overdosing on it. Uh, Andrew, you've been uh, very active in trying to help people with their battles with addiction. Well, what's the story here? Uh, are cops actually overdosing on fentanyl just by doing police work? Well, we all agree that cops have you know incredibly dangerous jobs. They're subjected to things day in and day out that we really probably couldn't even get our minds around. But... I've talked to physicians, I've talked to scientists about this and the effects of fentanyl, and you cannot walk into a room where fentanyl is present or if it gets on your hands or your shoulder or your foot, you cannot overdose that way. You can't. I I believed it myself when I first started hearing about it. When I was in Boston, it was a big issue, and... Nobody can make sense of it, why it's happening. That, that, but it, other than that the individual police officers are getting worked up, they're getting panicked, they're under an incredibly stressful situation, maybe have had you know, someone dying in front of them from an overdose, and that's taking over. I would love to know that it's something other than that, that, that that's not the case, because it just shows how difficult their jobs are. But no, there's no evidence that... that Law enforcement officers can can overdose if they come into contact with fentanyl. Dumb. Yes. Uh, <laughs> anything you want to add there? Don't argue with me. <laughs> I'm not. I'm not going to argue with Andrew. I mean, he's uh, he knows his stuff, and um, 
uh, might, from what I understand, you would have to like submerge your 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 like hand in it for like like half a day or something in order for it to get into your pores because it, it can't enter through the pores. But I, you know, I, I won't discount the fact that you might have somebody who's highly sensitive, and it might there might have been one person one time who was a cop who was highly sensitive, you know, and right. And inhaled it, and and you know that's that's your we used to call it in law school the eggshell plaintiff, you know. Right. Yeah, Richard, nothing you want to add there, Richard, right? Well, I think it's it could be collect, collective hype, uh-huh. in, in the sense in the sense that uh, uh, the 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 lethal dose of fentanyl I think is something like six uh, the, the the equivalent of six uh, uh, grains of salt. And so you, you you have a lot of that stuff out there in the media and the heuristics of it and and a lot of that and yeah it becomes an, an anxiety type thing but I I, I think that that the fentanyl it's deadly uh, but I think the deadliness of it to someone that's not using uh, is is being played gotcha. up. Gotcha. All right, uh, we only have about a minute and a half left, but I want to get you guys to comment quickly on this story in the Atlantic about the historic low in murder clearances by law enforcement. Uh, Dom, let me begin with you here. D- does this mean fewer murders are being solved? Uh, well, I mean, we have a lot. We have a lot more murders than we did sixty years ago, so it doesn't mean fewer are being solved, but proportionately. Uh, the statistics from 60 years ago may be questionable. Uh, they were probably just clearing stuff uh, willy-nilly at that point. Uh, they, they believe that statistics from 1980 and after are more accurate. Um, there's there's probably some some argument that perhaps there's some maybe amount of police incompetence that's involved. I don't know. It's, it's a tough one. All right. We're going to have to actually make that the last word. Uh, check out Andrew McKenna's book. It's Sheer Madness. It's available on Amazon. Richard, in five seconds, give me your Substack if people want to subscribe to your Substack. Lutman.substack.com. Gentlemen, let's do this again soon. Thank you all. Thank you, Frank. All right. Until next hour, keep asking questions. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano. everyone. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. It's officially Friday for the whole country. TGIF, welcome to Friday. It's the weekend. It would not be Friday if I didn't have an opportunity to denounce people. I got to tell you, having a platform on a weekly basis to denounce people, it's an incredible feeling. It is like a walking stress ball and a talking stress ball. It's great. It's a great way to get out your aggression over everybody that's wronged you or society. Maybe not everybody, but at least nine or ten entities. And those are precisely the folks that I have chosen to feature in this week's edition of... The Other Side of Midnight presents Denunciation. I have to begin with the Chicago White Sox. I I don't know what this team is doing this year. I I mean, this is a team which is now most famous for keeping on a manager that is long past his prime. So... I have to denounce the White Sox in general because this is why you have a first base coach and a third base coach. But specifically, 
base runners Adam Engel and Yoan Moncada. Monsada, I think is actually how it's pronounced. So I don't know if you heard about this, but Monday night was a really historic moment in baseball history. The Minnesota Twins were playing the Chicago White Sox. And there was a triple play, a triple play. Now, that's a rare thing in baseball these days. It's almost as rare. It's far more rare than a no-hitter, more rare than a perfect game. It's, I think, probably even more rare these days than stealing home. It is a rare thing. But what happened Monday is not rare for Major League Baseball. It's unheard of. It's never happened before. What happened Monday was the first in history 8-5 triple play. Now, if you don't know about baseball, all the positions have numbers. So the uh, number 8 is the center fielder. The number 5 is the third baseman. So, for instance, um, you know, a, um, a, a, a double play that's hit to the second baseman then uh, the second baseman fields it, tosses it to the shortstop, and the shortstop tosses it to the first base. That's a, a four-six-three double play. Very common. There's three numbers because there's three people involved. This was an eight-five triple play. Okay. So what happened here? This is what would happen in like a softball team that I'm managing, where nobody ha- knows how to base run. And actually, it wouldn't have even happened there because I'm shouting at these runners, tag up, tag up. So. This was incredible. Uh, Outfielder, the Twins outfielder, A.J. Pollock, came up to bat. He blasted a ball out to right center field. I mean, it was a monstrous shot. Nobody thought anybody could get this. It was drilled. And Twins uh, outfielder Byron Buxton, who has a lot of speed, ran quite a ways to snag this ball, and he caught it. Before it hit the outfield wall. Great catch by Buxton. So Pollock is out because he caught the ball. Now, Buxton was throwing the ball. As Buxton was throwing the ball, both base runners for the twi- for the uh, White Sox, Mansada and Engel, they stopped their movements and stood still like deers caught in headlights. Then they took off barreling forward thinking that the ball had hit the ground and Buxton hadn't made the catch. They didn't think they needed to tag up, which is everything. Tag up, by the way, is uh, when someone catches an outfield fly ball, you have to go back to the base and wait till he catches it in order to run. Then you can advance. They didn't do that. And, I, again, I don't know where the co- the coaches were. So, um, following that aware that lack of awareness that the ball was caught, they both took off. So... The outfielder um, tosses it to third base. Both runners were running to third base, which is usually the first indication that something is really wrong when you have two runners at the same base. So Buxton's throw to the infield didn't make it to his cutoff men, and it ended up in the glove of the third baseman, uh, who's in the best position to make the play. So he tags out Mansada on the base path, and then he went with the ball back over to second base where he got Angle out because Angle had failed to tag up at second base. I have never seen anything like that. I think if I live another hundred years uh, and watch Major League Baseball for another hundred years, I don't know that I will see anything like this again.
So, I mean, it's an impressive catch by, um, by Buxton and an impressive degree of awareness by all the Twins' defense. But really, this is stupidity. This should have been one out, not three outs. Instead, the Chicago White Sox, the brain surgeons that they are, their poor base running has resulted in the very first 8-5 triple play. I have to announce. I have to denounce the former mayor of New York City, Bill De Blasio. I thought I was done with this when um, when he left office, but sure enough, we're still just beginning to figure out the scope of Mayor De Blasio's ineptitude. Former mayor, <laughs> this guy. You'd think you'd learn after all the problems with Thrive NYC, right? Former Mayor de Blasio used accounting gimmicks to hide nearly $225 million that he poured into the city's ferry system. $225 million. And he forced the taxpayers to shell out as much as $14.57 for each ride as overwhelmingly wealthy passengers paid just two seventy five apiece. Now, I want low-cost transportation, and if I want to take this ferry, I'd like to pay two seventy five. But um, this is a, the result of an audit released by the city controller, Brad Lander. Now, Brad Lander certainly has an agenda, but he, he's not like a conservative ideologue. If anything, he's an ultra-left-wing ideologue. He became the council member from Bill de Blasio's district. After de Blasio was elected public advocate, Lander took over for him. And now he's issued this order, this uh, this audit that showed that the taxpayers were subsidizing each of these ferry rides to the tune of fourteen fifty seven per ride, and that the overwhelming majority of people taking this ferry are wealthy New Yorkers. In addition, De Blasio wasted, according to the Lander audit, uh, the uh, audit. In addition, De Blasio wasted sixty six million dollars, including thirty four million dollars in quote. This is not my quote, not a quote of some right-wing media outlet or right-wing politician. This is the ultra-left-wing Brad Lander, who, again, you might question his motives, too. He is a politician, but he wasted $66 million, including $34 million in questionable vessel acquisition costs as a result of bad decisions by his hand-picked official in charge of the city's Economic Development Corporation. Uh, Although the EDC reported spending $534 million to operate the ferries during the six and a half years that ended on December 31st, auditors uncovered a total of at least $758 million in ferry-related expenditures, a difference of $224 million. These undisclosed expenses, which included payments to various vendors and personnel costs, comprised $181 million in capital spending and $43.5 million in operating expenses, obfuscating the actual cost of the New York City ferry system. The bottom line is this. Look, when you're talking uh, $224 million here, $66 million here, $34 million there, $224.5 million there, it becomes difficult to keep track of all these numbers. The, the bottom line is this. Bill de Blasio ripped off the taxpayers of the city of New York to hide the true costs of his pet project, the New York City ferry system, which uh, most New Yorkers did not take advantage of. And 
he subsidized the cost of this by you paying the bill and then did whatever he could to hide those true costs from the public. And I do hope this um, hurts him in the congressional race. Still waiting for him to come on this show, by the way. When I saw the mayor at the uh, Friars Club testimonial dinner for uh, Tracy Morgan, he said he'd come on. Still waiting. I've got one, two, three, four, five empty chairs. Mr. Mayor, you're welcome to any one of them. Uh, I want to denounce whoever shot former Japanese Prime Minister Shinzo Abe. What a terrible story. You probably have heard about this. Broke just last night. The former Japanese Prime Minister uh, was rushed to the hospital after he was shot in the chest during a speech in Japan. Um, I mean, this is awful. This is a guy that was uh, prime minister for two separate times from 2006 to 2007 and again from 2012 to 2020. The longest serving Japanese prime minister in history. Police have arrested a man on suspicion of attempted murder. They have retrieved a gun. Nobody should shoot anybody. You should certainly never shoot a world leader, but you should especially never shoot the longest serving Japanese prime minister. I'm denouncing the person or persons responsible for shooting former Prime Minister uh, Shinzo Abe. And uh, we want to wish him the best. Uh, I know we have a lot of listeners in Japan. It's very convenient for them because of the time zone there. want to wish him the best and uh, hopefully a speedy recovery. Sincerely. I want to denounce whoever blew up in an explosion and destroyed this Wonderful Georgia monument. There's a great monument in Elberton, Georgia, called the Georgia Guidestones. And evidently, this rural Georgia monument that some conservative Christians criticized as satanic and others dubbed as America's Stonehenge was demolished on Wednesday after a pre-dawn bombing turned four of its granite panels into rubble. So this monument was damaged by an explosive device, and surveillance footage showed this uh, sharp explosion blowing one panel to rubble just after 4 o'clock in the morning. Uh, Very, very sad. I I don't know who these idiots are that get their jollies off of blowing up monuments, but um, I don't know. I don't know. But if I were the Georgia authorities, I would certainly be researching to see where Aldamato was at the time. That was a joke. I want to be very clear. All right. Uh, I want to denounce the <laughs> the activists in the United Kingdom that are gluing themselves to the frames of iconic paintings. Okay? Now, I, I think climate change is a real problem. I think if you want to deal with climate change, that's great. If you want to protest about climate change, that's great. But there's no need to glue yourself to priceless works of art, as is being done in London right now. Um, You have this couple, Eben Lazarus and his girlfriend, Hannah Hunt, these two students in their 20s, and they glued themselves to some historic 19th century paintings transforming, uh, I mean, it's just terrible. The couple then removed their jackets to reveal T-shirts bearing the slogan, Just Stop Oil. 
they glued themselves to the painting's frame and shouted about the need for action on climate change. So Lazarus said in a booming voice, art is important, but it was not more important than the lives of my siblings and every generation that we are condemning to an unlivable future. What did the artwork ever do to you? I, I, did, I don't understand. I mean, if you want to glue yourself to an oil refinery somewhere or glue yourself to an SUV or be like James Cromwell, glue yourself to a Starbucks counter, or like I did when I was protesting uh, the not bringing back tab, glue yourself to uh, the step and repeat that we have here at the radio station, I think that's one thing. But uh, what, are you, what are you gluing yourself to 19th century artwork for? I mean, it's just, again, I think this is just another instance of misplaced targeting of aggression. I want to denounce uh, two good friends of mine, Rich and Danielle Hoffman. So they had a barbecue last Sunday, July 4th weekend. We were happy to go there. Uh, Flattered to be invited. Had a good time. Even though Sundays are very tough for me because I have to work Sunday night into Monday. So... I mean, if I had my druthers, I would spend all of Sunday home, really, resting and preparing for the show. But I soldiered on, and I went to this barbecue, had some great food, and had some good conversation. I think my wife uh, swam. And they asked us, can we borrow your ladder ball? Yes. Can we borrow your cornhole? Yes. Can we borrow your folding chairs? Yes. Can we borrow your folding table? Yes. So we lent them ladder ball, cornhole, folding chairs, folding table, and brought vodka and a salad when we went to the barbecue. Lo and behold, we had we need this ladder ball because it's being lent out to my sister-in-law, Deborah, for her party at her house on Sunday. So we're going to Atlantic City tomorrow, and then... From, we're going to be in Atlantic City, or today rather, Friday and Saturday. And then Sunday morning, we're going to Tom's River to go to my sister-in-law. So we need this ladder ball game. And lo and behold, yesterday, my friend Rich comes to drop off the stuff. Great, great to see them. I'll just put it there, Rich, all good. Not only did Rich neglect, which I'm going to have to probably make a special trip today to pick up, not only did Rich neglect to return cornhole and the folding table, but one of the ladder ball ropes was severed. They broke one of the ladder ball ropes. And I got to tell you, the other adult in my household that I live with was already having a pretty frustrating day, and this just Put that person over the top. Okay? And um, basically, the reason I have to denounce Rich and Danielle is because I worry about what this does for the next guy. Because now, the next person that asks us to borrow something, whether it's ladder ball, whether it's cornhole, whether it's bocce, I think we're going to be a lot less eager to do that because they couldn't handle this responsibly. And by the way, we were at the barbecue. I didn't even see them have ladder ball out. So clearly it was out somewhere, somebody played it, and they broke it. So now I have to now go look for a replacement blue ladder ball on the rope and kind of figure out something for uh, my sister-in-law's uh, soiree on Sunday. I was the ladder ball guy. Sheesh. I mean, come on. 
somebody lends you something, you should take better care of it than if it was yourself. So, Rich and Danielle, for not the first time and not the last time, I do denounce you. I must also denounce whole milk. Oh, yes, that's right. If you drink whole milk, listen carefully, and you may need to rewind this if you're listening on the podcast and listen twice, because apparently whole milk is being linked to cognitive decline. Oh, yes, a new study reveals a possible connection between drinking whole milk and an increased risk of cognitive decline. Research article published in the journal Molecular Nutrition Food Research looked at whether dairy consumption could cause changes in cognition. Now, it was conducted in Spain, but they found that, yes, the results did not show any negative effects on cognitive performance after consuming low-fat milk or yogurt or cheese, or fermented dairy on a regular basis. However, higher milk intake, specifically whole milk, was linked with a greater rate of cognitive decline over a two-year period. So, folks, if you have somebody in your family that uh, you want them to forget about the fact that you owe them money, pour them an ice-cold glass of whole milk. For the rest of you, stay away from it. Um... Whole milk, I do denounce you. I must also denounce the city of Fort Wayne, Indiana. I have uh, never been to Fort Wayne, Indiana, which, of course, means I have no problem denouncing it. But a a new survey from WalletHub. I love WalletHub. Every week I feel like they have a different survey on something that I'm able to use for this. Um, Fort Wayne, Indiana was ranked last, repeat, last in a Wallet Hub report on the best and worst cities for recreation. The study used 47 key indicators of recreation friendliness, including accessibility of entertainment and recreational facilities, the quality of parks and weather. And out of the 100 cities that they looked at, Fort Wayne, Indiana was dead last. So if you don't, if you want to enjoy recreation, Stay out of Fort Wayne. Uh, But ultimately, I want to denounce the Chicago mayor, Lori Lightfoot. I mean, this woman is just too much. How this woman ever got elected is beyond me. But she's the mayor. And this is what I find amazing. So she shouts. Okay. She denounces toxicity in public discourse. Now, I agree with that. agree with that completely. I think our public discourse is way too toxic, which is why I took issue so much with what uh, Alphonse D'Amato said yesterday. But this is just a couple of days after she shouts F. Clarence Thomas. So she's out there saying we should strike a more civil tone just days after cursing out a Supreme Court justice. So she speaks at this event on Tuesday, and she decries attacks on police officers in her city, suggesting it's a sign of people losing respect for the institutions of democracy. She said, uh, toxicity in our public discourse is a thing that I think we should all be concerned about, right? But just a couple of days before that, she said, F. Clarence Thomas. Now, 
First of all, nobody should say that about any person, let alone a public servant, let alone a Supreme Court justice. But how do you say that and then denounce toxicity in public discourse? Somebody ought to go and buy Lori Lightfoot a mirror so she could take a look at the kind of things that she's saying. And finally, uh, I want to denounce the uh, New York City Department of Health. Uh, They have totally botched the rollout of the monkeypox vaccine. Right now, we are seeing a growing monkeypox outbreak, which has the potential to be very serious, particularly in the gay community. And thousands of New Yorkers spent hours this week refreshing a city government webpage, desperately seeking a a monkeypox vaccine. And this rollout has been just as horrendous as New York City's rollout of the COVID vaccine. Did city government learn nothing from the botched COVID rollout? How do they have a vaccine rollout with this many glitches? So the um, commissioner of the Department of Health apologized. Oh, good, good. I'm sure if you have uh, monkeypox now, that apology does a lot for you. Just remember, sorry, don't butter the bread, right? Sorry, don't pay the bills. Sorry, don't walk the dog. All right. um, If you want to comment on anyone I have denounced, you are welcome to give me a call at 800-848-9222. If you want to comment on any other issues that we've uh, touched upon today, you're welcome to. 800-848-9222. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Izzy, I think we got to broaden our musical repertoire. We just played this yesterday, I believe. So I, I think we, uh, you know, once we start repeating songs on a day-to-day basis, we, I think we got to broaden, broaden things out a bit. By the way, thank you for uh, filling in for uh, Matt Blaze uh, today, Izzy. Oh, you're welcome. No problem. Thank you. Uh, Matt Blaze will be back on uh, Monday. Now, it is pizza day here on the uh, on the other side of midnight. Uh, Izzy, did you have an opportunity to avail yourself of any of the pizza offerings today? <laughs> I did, and it was delicious. I don't know where you get your pizza from each week, but it's it's the best thing ever. And, and by the way, that one pie that had, like, sausage and, like, what was it, the green Onions or whatever it was on that was really good. That yeah, one. that's what um, that's what this particular uh, pizzeria. I, we don't need to give them a free commercial because you know they charge us a good amount of money for this uh, this pizza, so we don't need to give them a, an advertisement. But um, that's what they're they're known for over there. And uh, good, I'm glad you like that. I tried. I was in a white mood. I actually didn't eat anything um, the whole day, uh, so I, ha- I had the pesto. I usually just do maybe one slice, if at all. But I did the pesto white and then the standard white, and then I actually did a half of the regular uh, pizza as well. Kenneth, who's new to our little uh, soiree here. Kenneth, uh, are you a pizza eater? What's your story? Yeah, so I am, Frank. But uh, over the last year, I uh, discovered I had an allergy, actually, Oh, to the protein that's, like, in milk. So Oh, so you're lactose intolerant. 
What do you say? Are you lactose intolerant? What do you say? You can't hear me. What did you say? Uh, I said so. You're lactose intolerant. So not not specifically. It's it's or not not generally. It's it's the actual protein in the milk, like the casein or the whey. It's not all lactose. It's really weird. Wow. All right. Well, so I'm sorry that uh, that you couldn't. Right, if you're going to be with us every day, we'll we'll come up with a a, a dairy free pizza that you can enjoy. Oh, it's no problem, Frank. I brought uh, sausage and peppers from home, so oh, that good. was really All right. good. Good. All right. Well, it doesn't. Yeah, okay. Um, uh, Alex Barnard, what was your review of the uh, of the pizza today? Yeah. Or I mean, you could have just talked from the microphone that you're at, but, but I mean, that would be a whole thing, Frank. Yeah, uh, that it would be. Yeah. I'm already regretting um, asking. <laughs> Uh, I had the pesto and white pizza, which I think you you tend to get that one a lot from the various places that we order, and I I really enjoy that combo, um, as well as the you know just the regular cheese pizza, but uh, especially the pesto and the white um, slice was really really good. All right, uh, Ryan, how about just a thumbs up because uh, I didn't I didn't mean it to be for such a chore just to get the pizza review from it. All right, thumbs up or thumb two thumbs up. All right, good. That's clear. Frank, it's always a chore with me. That it is. That it is. Uh, well, you're doing a great job, uh, especially with Matt Blaze being out. Thank you for uh, all your additional roles Appreciate today. Uh, all right. 800-848-9222 if you, want to, uh, if you want to comment on anything that we are discussing. By the way, I want to give a uh, special shout-out, not a formal commendation, but a special shout-out to my uh, son, Carmine, who... Yesterday, and I would love to see this be a nightly occurrence now, slept the whole night for the first time. Didn't get up once. So I put him to bed on, uh, what's today? Today's Friday. So I put him to bed Wednesday night around 7.30, and then I came home at around 10 after 6. He didn't get up until about a quarter after 6. He slept from about 7.30 to a quarter after 6. The very first time that he slept the whole night without getting up once to be fed or asking to be changed. So uh, if if he can do this on a nightly basis, not only will I think he have a much better time, but I think it'll be a much better situation for everybody, human and feline, in our household, believe me. All right, uh, 800-848-9222. We'll uh, take your calls straight ahead. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. To be continued. The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Young teacher, the subject of schoolgirl fantasy. She wants me so badly, knows what she wants to be. Inside her, there's longing, this girl's an open page, bookmarking, she's so close now, this girl is half his age. Well, this is a uh, discussion that could have been playing out on uh, June 28th in Manhattan. Uh, So just so you understand, uh, not to get too inside baseball here, New York City, and I think probably a lot of some other cities have something like this, but New York City has something called 
community boards, right? Uh, and I was on the community boards for uh, the community board in my area for several years. There's 59 in all. And basically what they are is there's these little mini town halls in New York City that represent a portion of the neighborhood. And all the people that serve on the community board, and by the way, some people think I'm still on the community board because the community board chair in my area has the same name as me. Great guy. He's a friend of mine. We um, we get along well, but um, no relation. No relation, and he's not me. But I still get all sorts of people, including like good friends of mine, asking for, you know, Arc advice or architectural reference or whatever, but um, it's not me. So these these community boards are volunteer positions. You don't get paid, and sometimes they could be very, very uh, labor intensive. You're appointed by either the local city council member or the borough president. Technically, it's always the borough president, but half of the recommendations are from the local council member, and then the local community board members elect a chair. Well. On primary night in New York, on June 28th, the chairman of a Manhattan community board, Community Board 4, Jeffrey LaFrancois, uh, Community Board 4, by the way, spans Manhattan's west side, the Hell's Kitchen area. They got into a heated exchange, uh, he and a Democratic district leader, at an election victory party. Boy, imagine if it was an election loss party, how it would have went. But uh, they were at an election victory party for a Democratic Assembly candidate, Tony Simone, in Chelsea on June 28th. And as part of this heated discussion, Jeffrey LaFrancois said to this Democratic district leader, Marissa Redanti, he called her a word I can't say on the radio. And in fact, I don't think it's a word I've ever said. Um, certainly never called anybody this, but um, it's a it's a a word. It's the c word, basically. It's a word for female anatomy. It's sort of a vulgar uh, term for a, a female anatomy. And then after that, apparently he was overheard by a number of people. A lot of people have called on this guy to resign. Now this is a a reputable guy. He is the executive director of Manhattan's Meatpacking Business Improvement District. And uh, the person he called this vulgar term to said in a statement, and this was written about in the New York Daily News, with all that's going on for going for us as women and our rights being taken away, enough is enough. We don't live in times where you get to say this with impunity. So a lot of folks are saying this guy ought to resign from this unpaid position as chairman of Manhattan Community Board 4. Now, I don't know anything about um, Jeffrey LaFrancois. I don't know if he's the best chairman of the community board or the worst. My um, my take is, now, this is what he said. This is what he told the Daily News a couple of days ago. He admitted that he used this offensive term in the confrontation with this woman, but he also alleged he felt provoked by Marissa who was, quote, using abusive language towards me. I should not have responded in kind, and for that I apologize. So he declined to elaborate on what Redanti called him or told him. Instead, he pointed to a February 2021 statement issued by the Hell's Kitchen Democrats, which he used to be the secretary for, that accused Redanti of bullying and abuse against members of the club. So um, the Manhattan Borough president has jurisdiction over the community board appointments. And Redanti, 
said she's considering filing a formal complaint with the borough president in the hopes that it will trigger an investigation. Investigation? For using a bad word? Is this really where we are in society? We're filing formal complaints over a bad word? We're asking for investigations over a, a verbal, uh, come on, a ver- verbal fisticuffs? So a spokesman for the borough president said uh, as of Tuesday they had not received the complaint. Um, former city controller Scott Stringer, who was also the Manhattan borough president, said Redanti told him about the incident with LaFrancois after it happened. Stringer urged Levine to investigate the matter and potentially take, take steps to strip LaFrancois of his chairmanship. Quote, the borough president, you have to say it like Scott Stringer, which is kind of whiny, almost like your nose is clogged. The borough president should investigate these very serious allegations and then act accordingly. When I was borough president, I had zero tolerance for this type of behavior. This is just not acceptable. Let me say, I don't, I've never called a woman this word. I, I, I would never call any person this word. I don't really curse in general. I mean, even friends of mine and uh, family members, I, I think they'd be hard-pressed to tell you of an occasion where I've used profanity. I mean... I think I could count on two hands, aside from quoting something like a movie or something, I don't think I've used profanity more than a dozen times in my life. So I I don't like this kind of language. I don't think this is how people should talk to one another, especially people that are involved in in politics and setting an example for other younger folks that may want to be involved in the community. But this has nothing to do with his job, volunteer, by the way, as chairman of the Manhattan Community Board 4. And in my view, I I might want this guy removed for other reasons, but in my view, this is crazy. And Scott Stringer, I mean, what a dope. This is a fellow whose mayoral campaign was marred by really, I'll call them, uh, lacking... In allegations of sexual harassment, you would think when you get screwed by by the um, the Me Too mafia, I'll call it, you would be a little reluctant to immediately jump as soon as another controversy emerges and point and say, oh, him too, him too, and get rid of that guy. Come on. Doesn't there come a point where you get sick of pandering? Doesn't there come a point where you say, look. It was an election night party. They both probably had too much to drink. They got a little heated. Um, It would be nice if they could get along, but clearly they can't. They both probably used language they shouldn't. Nobody should ever use this kind of language. The guy apologized. Let's move on. That would be the nice thing for Redanti to say. That would be the nice thing for, um, you know, everybody involved to say. But instead, you got to make a federal case out of everything. I don't know about you, um, but I don't think that... um, that this merits his removal or resignation. What do you think? I mean, should somebody have to resign from a volunteer position because in the heat of the moment they used an offensive term like this? I I, I don't see it. You're welcome to disagree. 800-848-9222. Um, Steve in Manhattan has been patiently holding. Hello, Steve. 
uh, non-Mayor Lighthead, was she speaking literally or figuratively? Now, Big <laughs> Frank, the the hard left, they, they play hardball, and they will go after each other. They, they got control of this country, and they're going to go after each other even when they have the control They're going because they want to be the top person there. And um, they play hardball. And Lee Zeldin, has he, Lee Zeldin's campaign gone underground, folks? I mean, where where is this guy now? I mean, he's going to have plenty of time after the campaign. I mean, I, if I was Lee Zeldin, I would demand that Hochul put the New York National Guard on the Texas border and help put that thing down there because it's out of control what's going on down there. And they're changing America. They're changing it geographically. They're changing it demographically. And the conservatives are never going to win any more elections at a certain point. November will be just uh, a speed bump in the, in the history of this country because of what's taking place. Legal and illegal immigration has to be stopped cold. And also the C word you just brought up, that word has really been out of the, I'm surprised you use it, it's been out of the American vernacular for years. Well, what can you say? The guy's probably a little out, out of touch, you know? Right, he could be out of touch, and he obviously he might have had you know a little catnip, might have been drinking a little. But regardless, that's how the hard left plays. They they play hardball. The Republican establishment, folks, this is what they're trying to do to you. They're trying to get you to accept what's going on today in this country. They wa- really want you to accept. It. And and one of the best, best exhibit A's is look at all the money that the corporations gave to those radical groups. Aren't they radical groups? Why would you be giving them money? Because they were, because you know why? They're all in on it. The hard left, the Republican establishment, and I don't call it corporate American or more. We know these are multinational corporations. And listen, they turned China, Chinese communists, the leaders, into billionaires. When I was a little kid, the communists were the enemies. Now they're, they're, now they're billionaires, and we made them billionaires. Thank well, you. Not me, the corporation. Well, that's right. Thank you, Steve. Uh, we're going to continue with your calls in a moment. I just have to mention, so for years— I was a naysayer. Um, I fought the good fight as a trend swept the nation and quite possibly the world for a while. I was the last man standing. I was I was like uh, Sisyphus pushing that rock right up that hill. What am I talking about? Well, a couple of years ago, the whole world went crazy. For hard seltzer and for um, hard seltzer type drinks, White Claw, Truly, a bunch of other ones. And I poo-pooed it every time. Nah, what do I need that for? I could just pour myself a little vodka and a little club soda myself. I'll pour in as much vodka as I want, pour in as much club soda as I want. And then if I want a little lime juice, I'll throw that in there. Well, I'd say about two years ago, I totally threw in the towel. And I said, okay, this is just way too convenient. This is just way too refreshing. The flavors are way too great. And they're all right there. The can is cool. The flavors are great. This is just great. On a hot summer day, I am maybe a little embarrassed to say this, but I'm going to go ahead and do it. I indulge in a White Claw or a Truly or a Hard Seltzer then and again. I've now become an active proponent of of these Hard Seltzer style drinks. And so, lo and behold, my favorite gin is Bombay Sapphire. They have now launched a gin and tonic Bombay Sapphire pre-mixed can. And I am looking at this. I don't really drink tonic anyway. Um, I'm looking at this and saying, no, I'm never going to drink this. And I'm wondering if two years I'm going to eat my words or at least 
drink my gin and tonic because it does look cool. I, I, I drink Bombay Sapphire. That's my go-to gin. It's the only gin I drink, really. And But I'm not a gin and tonic guy, so I'm wondering, I'm going to try and resist this, but I wonder how ubiquitous this is going to be and if it's going to take off like all these hard seltzers have taken off. We'll see. It's going to be very interesting. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Uh, an exciting chapter of my life came to an end yesterday. I'll tell you what it was straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is the other side of midnight. I'm going to take your calls um, shortly. I have finally gotten around to completing the most recent season of Ozark. Now, I'm not a big television watcher, and I realized why um, when I found myself trying to schedule 15 minutes here, 20 minutes there to watch a little more Ozark, because to me, these television programs are too much of a commitment. I, I can't. I can't. I feel like I have another job when I get into watching one of these shows, and especially one that's as compelling as Ozark. So I finally watched it, and this is the final season of Ozark. I got to tell you, I thought it was tremendous. I, I thought it was absolutely terrific. I'm not going to give any spoilers away in case people haven't seen it. This show has got to be one of the best acted shows of all time. I love this show. This show is a perfect show. If you like drama, Jason Bateman, who uh, before this was known for a lot of comedies in both film and uh, uh, television pr- programs, he's a great actor. He's amazing on this show. Laura Linney, tremendous. Julia Garner, I, uh, yeah, Julie Garner or Julia Garner, the woman that plays um, Ruth on this show, she might be the best actress of all time. This show is out of control. Uh, so I know some people were disappointed in the finale. I thought it was a perfect finale. And, you know, you have these people that are quite ruthless. And it goes to show you how great actors they are. I find myself rooting for them in every single episode. So um, if you have not seen Ozark, I envy you because you have four great seasons of television ahead of you. Watch it. Watch it today or watch it whenever it rains. Until next hour, your influence counts. So use it. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. They're running a strange program, y'all. Now, here's Frank Morano.
everybody. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Moreno. Thank you for starting your weekend with me, TJIF. Thank God it's Friday. Thank God it's Frank. I appreciate your listening to me. And uh, unfortunately, we got some uh, sad news yesterday. Uh, beloved actor James Kahn has passed away at the age of 82. James Kahn, wa- I never met James Kahn. I never spoke to James Kahn. Never got the opportunity to interview James Kahn. But this is, in my view, how you know he was such a great artist. I felt like I did know him. Uh, th- not just through the characters that he played on screen, on in television and film, but through the interviews that he did, there was just something about him that exuded an intimacy with the audience. I, only 82, too. I hate to see that. And certainly James Kahn is somebody that always exuded strength, always exuded machismo, always exuded toughness. Uh, I was very sorry to see James Kahn uh, pass away. He was a guy that I always could, I could always see myself being friendly with him. And I'm sorry that I never got to meet him or at least interview him. This was a man's man and an incredible actor. Obviously uh, best known probably for the role of uh, Sonny Corleone in the movie The Godfather. He is uh, such an integral part of that film, uh, including for lines like this one. What are you going to do? Nice college boy, huh? They want to get mixed up in the family business? Huh? Now you want to gun down a police captain? Why, because he slapped you in the face a little bit? Huh? What do you think, this is the army where you shoot him a mile away? You got to get up close like this, and bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. Come in. Well, I love when he says that. a bing you blow their brains all over your nice cyber league suit. So you'll appreciate this if you're a fan of The Sopranos, right? The strip club that they would hang out on The Sopranos was called the Bada Bing. That's why it's called the Bada Bing. From that line in that picture. Now, if anybody else other than James Kahn said Bada Bing, do you think it would have had that same sort of, I don't know, melisma that it did the way James Kahn was saying it? I don't think they'd be. I mean, picture Martin Sheen saying Bada Bing. And they wouldn't be naming strip clubs after the way Martin Sheen said it. Nothing against Martin Sheen. Uh, Jewish. Very interesting for somebody that was born to Jewish immigrants from Germany right here in New York, from the Bronx, and somebody whose career came to be defined on screen by playing gangsters and very credibly as well. And I I guess, um, you know, some people after James Conn passed away were saying, I referenced James Conn yesterday because we were talking about the movie Scarface. And uh, I said, how, how crazy is that, that nobody in Scarface that's playing a Cuban is actually Cuban? Well, uh, two of the biggest actors in The Godfather, Marlon Brando and James Caan, as I said yesterday, are not actually Italian. But to me, James Caan uh, comes across as a very credible Italian actor. His father was a meat dealer and a butcher. So he, born in the Bronx, grew up in Sunnyside, Queens, Went to um, went to school in New York until college. Then he went to Michigan State University. And during his time at Michigan State, he wanted to play football, couldn't make the team. So he transferred to Hofstra University on Long Island, didn't graduate. And then one of his classmates at, at Hofstra turned out to be a fella by the name of Francis Ford Coppola. So while studying at Hofstra, 
he became intrigued by the idea of acting. And he was uh, interviewed for and I think in, then enrolled in the Neighborhood Playhouse School of Theater where he studied for five years. And he fell in love with acting uh, in school and, and developed that relationship with Coppola, who put him in one of James Kahn's, I think, his first movie, The Rain People, which is a pretty good film, actually. And uh, But still, I think when you even though he was a young man at the time, let's see if he's 81 now, that means he was born in 1940. That means by the time The Godfather came, he was only 32 when The Godfather came out. And yet that role defined the rest of his life. I mean, think about achieving that level of success and recognition at that young of an age. It's really it's got to be tough to some end. And I, I, there are so many great lines that he has in that film, The Godfather, including... Hey, listen to this. The turf, he wants to talk. You got your imagine a nerve on his son of a b***h. Craps out last night, he wants a meeting today. What'd he say? What did he say? But the beep, but the bap, but the boop, but the beep. He wants us to send Michael to hear the proposition. And the promise is that the deal is so good that we can't refuse. Hey, what about Bruno Tatali? It's part of the deal. Bruno cancels out what they did to my father. Sonny, we ought to hear what they had to say. No, 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 no more. Not this time, Consigliere. No more meetings, no more discussions, no more Salazzo tricks. You give him one message, I want Salazzo. Now it's all out war, we go to the Some back. Some of the other families won't sit still. They never had me, Salazzo. Your father would want to hear this. This is business, not personal. They shot my father. Even the shooting of your father was business, not personal, Sonny. Well, then business will have to suffer, all right? And listen, do me a favor, Tom. No more advice on how to patch things up. Just help me win, please, all right? That 52 seconds is among my favorite 52 seconds in all of cinema. So much so, I quote, first of all, the way James Kahn says meetings in that, in that piece of dialogue there, that's a work of art. Meetings. No more meetings. I love it. I absolutely love it. I quote different parts of that dialogue, the 52 seconds you just heard, so often that my friends and family, my close friends and family, are no longer able to say the words to me, what did he say? Because they stop themselves. Because they know if they ever say to me the words, what did he say? My response is, what did he say? Bada beep, bada bop, bada boop, bada beep. He wants to send, he wants us to send Michael to hear a proposition. That will always be my response to when anybody says, what did he say? Bada beep, bada bop, bada boop, bada beep. He wants to set up a meeting. He wants to send Michael. So anyway, but here's the interesting thing about James Caan. Well, there's many interesting things about James Caan. You want to talk about one of the most interesting figures in the history of cinema. By the way, I'd love to hear your thoughts on everybody knows The Godfather and The Godfather Part Two, which he, of course, is in at the very end. Um, I'd love to know what your favorite non-Godfather James Caan film is. If you have one. And, and there's a lot to choose from. I tried to make my list before. First of all, I was surprised at how many of these films I hadn't seen. Um, he, there's family films. There's comedy. There's drama. I'll give you a couple of my favorite James Conn films. But I'd love to hear your favorite non-Godfather James Conn film. 800-848-9222. Uh, this was a guy, James Conn, who was very wild. Very wild. So he had a, had a cocaine habit for about 20 years. I think married, uh, had five children, was married one, two, three, four times. 
married four times and divorced four times. He lived at the Playboy Mansion for a time. He joked that um, it was prescribed after his divorce to help him get over the divorce. So it's interesting that he actually auditioned to play the role of Michael Corleone. So Paramount, the studio that made The Godfather, they had all sorts of um, hopes for who would play Michael Corleone. Now, remember, Coppola had a relationship with James Caan. So Caan was originally tested for the role of Sonny, and uh, because Coppola knew him, he liked him, wanted him in the movie, but then he was slated to play Michael after all of Paramount's initial choices. Warren Beatty, Robert Redford, Ryan O'Neill didn't pan out. And then when Al Pacino came on board, James Caan was switched back to Sonny. Now, this is a little bit of James Caan's audition. I don't know of another radio show that's going to play this today, unless it's a radio show that is, you know, hearing what we're doing and then just uses the idea, which they're welcome to. That's fine. But this is James Caan auditioning for The Godfather, not for the role of Sonny, but for the role of Michael. Listen to this. One night I got a call from Francis. He was in New York, and he said, uh, Jimmy, and I could tell from his voice, this was not his idea. Jimmy, uh, uh, why don't you come in and test? I said, test what? What, do you got a Porsche? You want me to drive around the block? What do you want? Test what? He said, please, uh, they want you to play Michael. Why? Please. I, so I went in. 168. Michael, hmm? why are those people bothering your father on a day like this? Huh? Well, that's because they know no Sicilian can refuse a request on his daughter's wedding day. Oh, good. <clears throat> so uh, there's him interacting with Diane Keaton there. And, uh, you know, if you find online or if you have the DVD, you can look at some of the behind-the-scenes featurette. They show a little bit of that uh, audition of him auditioning for Michael. Some other interesting people auditioned for different roles that didn't end up uh, panning out. But... Aside from The Godfather, a James Caan film that I just love, that was a classic, which is, I think, James Caan at his finest. And it goes to show, James Caan was making movies in like five or six different decades. The 60s, the 70s, the 80s, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. Over the course of six decades, he was making films. Do you know how difficult it is to get cast in one movie and get paid? This guy was getting paying roles in films over six different decades. That's incredible. Uh, another film that he did that I just loved, which was a, a real classic uh, from the 90s, 20 years after The Godfather, was Misery, where he plays the writer that Kathy Bates' character is obsessed with. Remember how for all those years nobody knew who Misery's real father was? Or if they'd ever be reunited? It's all right here. Does she finally marry Ian? Or will it be Winthorne? It's all right here. Paul, you can't! Why not? I learned it from you. No, 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 no misery! Not my misery! No, not my misery! A f- amazing film. If you're feeling like you need to catch up on some James Caan films, that is certainly one to, to watch. Now, James Conn was an amazing actor. He was also an amazing storyteller. When I would hear that he'd be on radio or TV, I was glued, absolutely glued. He was also hilarious. I was listening to my friend Bruce Charrett on another radio show 
yesterday, and he mentioned what a funny guy James Kahn was in real life. He was friendly with him in real life. And he said that um, when you'd hang out with James Kahn, you wouldn't think that you were hanging out with uh, a Hollywood actor. You would almost feel like you're hanging out with a nightclub comic. That's the kind of atmosphere he exuded. And I remember once, maybe about 25 years ago, maybe more, he was on the Howard Stern show. And they used to do these mystery guest segments where Howard and Robin and the cast was all blindfolded. And they bring in a guest to answer yes or no questions. We tried to do this. didn't go so well for us. Um, and he was one of the people that they were interviewing as a mystery guest. And they were guessing at who it was based on his responses. And I think it was Robin who guessed that it was Alan King. And you could, the comedian, Alan King, you could understand why she would guess that because he was just so funny. He had an incredible sense of humor, which is very interesting given all the tough guy roles that he played over the years. An incredible storyteller. He was also something, and I don't hold this against him, believe me, because some people have accused me of doing the same thing. He was something of a gangster groupie. This wasn't just a guy that enjoyed playing gangsters. This was a guy that not enjoyed, loved hanging out with gangsters. Okay, uh, when Carmine Persico, the boss of the Colombo crime family, was on trial, James Kahn went to court and kissed him publicly. When Andrew Mush Russo, who was also the acting boss of the Colombo crime family, when they arrested him, James Kahn wrote a letter to the judge on Andrew Mush Russo's behalf. Andrew Mush Russo recently passed away as well. So the guy was something of a gangster groupie, loved being a tough guy in real life, loved hanging out with gangsters, um, loved the kind of the gangster life. And he was somebody that really made that transition from playing a famous gangster in the movies to hanging out with gangsters in real life. So obviously, who's going to take issue with that? Curtis Lewa, right? So (laughs) I was working with Curtis about 12 years ago. And Andrew Russo is arrested. And uh, it was mentioned that James Kahn wrote a letter to the judge. And Curtis does what he always does. He takes one scintilla of truth and then he makes up a whole bunch of other things. So (laughs) the truth was that James Kahn wrote a letter on behalf of Andrew Mush Russo. Curtis does this whole thing on the radio about how... uh, James Kahn had gotten a mob scholarship, how he was in court and he had kissed Andrew Mush Russo on both cheeks. And that's because he's a trisexual. He would try anything. Oh, that's how those Hollywood types are. He does this whole thing. Now, this is not when Curtis was on WABC. This was on a radio station that nobody could hear. The only people listening to us at the time Curtis made these comments were people in prison, which it happened to include was Andrew Mush Russo. So. James Kahn gets word that Curtis was talking about him on the air. He sends a letter, and his lawyer sends a letter to the radio station. I want to emphasize, not this one, not this one. Different radio station, up the dial. He sends a letter to the radio station demanding that Curtis issue an apology. And you know radio stations that are owned by corporations. They were doing They were doing somersaults. They, they didn't know what to do with this. A letter from a lawyer, they start freak, freaking out. Oh, my goodness. 
So the lawyers for the radio station and James Kahn go back and forth on this different drafts of language for this apology. And there was this very specific wording of this apology that Curtis had to read. This apology that they came up with was so incredibly absurd that you would have thought that I wrote it as a parody. Um, This was so difficult for Curtis to record because he kept laughing every 30 seconds. Sure enough, and I remember when the lawyers handed this letter, this this, uh, apology to Curtis, he said, this is really what they want me to read? Sure enough, this is the apology that Curtis had to make on the radio 12 years ago to actor James Caan. I would like to take this opportunity to correct a few statements I made in earlier broadcasts on my show concerning the well-known actor James Caan. Contrary to my prior statements, Mr. Khan was not in attendance at a court hearing involving Andrew Russo in New York on April 15, 2011. And therefore, he did not kiss Mr. Russo on the mouth at that hearing, as I previously stated. I also falsely stated that Mr. Khan was a trisexual. I have no knowledge about Mr. Khan's sexual preferences or activities, and it was not my intention to question Mr. Khan's sexual preferences or activities. Although Mr. Khan had written a letter to the judge in support of Mr. Russo obtaining bail, I incorrectly referred to that letter as a friend of the court brief. Further, Mr. Russo did not assist Mr. Khan in his early acting career. I retract my earlier baseless comments about Mr. Khan and sincerely apologize for making them. (laughs) We know how sincere that apology was. From now on, for all the inaccurate things that Curtis says about me, I want a lawyer. I'm just going to have a lawyer draft like a template. I had had, uh, drinks with a lawyer last night. I'm going to have a lawyer draft a template that I can just fill in the blanks with the misinformation. And I'm going to start demanding that Curtis issue one of those fake apologies to me every, every Saturday and Sunday. (laughs) That was just great. All right, I'm going to take your calls next. I'd love to know your favorite James Caan film other than The Godfather and The Godfather Part 2. But um, as we go to break, Izzy, not only do I want to hear that apology again, but I I think it really plays so well with a little music in the background. I would like to take this opportunity to correct a few statements I made in earlier broadcasts on my show concerning the well-known actor James Caan. Contrary to my prior statements... Mr. Khan was not in attendance at a court hearing involving Andrew Russo in New York on April 15, 2011. And therefore, he did not kiss Mr. Russo on the mouth at that hearing, as I previously stated. I also falsely stated that Mr. Khan was a trisexual. I have no knowledge about Mr. Khan's sexual preferences or activities, and it was not my intention to question Mr. Khan's sexual preferences or activities. Although Mr. Khan had written a letter to the judge in support of Mr. Russo obtaining bail, I incorrectly referred to that letter as a friend of the court brief. Further, Mr. Russo did not assist Mr. Khan in his early acting career. I retract my earlier baseless comments about Mr. Khan and sincerely apologize for making them. Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano.
other side of midnight with Frank Morano. side of midnight i'm frank morano we're gonna do the thousand dollar minute in just a bit but uh, we're taking a look at the life and times of actor james con i am curious if people my favorite non-james con uh, non-godfather james con film and there are many that i love i i love the film elf i think he's great in that as far as uh, family films as far as action film go films go i think he's great in eraser i love misery but look you know me i'm a gambling fan and I think he is just brilliant in The Gambler. Absolutely brilliant in The Gambler. Not including, uh, he is in the Mel Brooks film, Silent Movie, as himself. But that's really a cameo. I'm not counting that. Uh, what's yours? 800-848-9222. Mark is in Westchester. Hello, Mark. Yes, Frank. You stole a slight bit of my thunder. Oh, the sorry. original Gambler uh, was with James Caan was a great movie. They remade it, and it was really pathetic. I don't remember who the actor was. Yeah, I think it. it was Mark That's Wahlberg. How bad it was. I think it was Mark Wahlberg. I, I, yes, it was. I remember him with his little boy suit on. Um, <laughs> the other one was Rollerball. Oh, that's a great one, too. A great one. An absolute classic. One of the sterling, like, uh, violence means everything, like that 1970s classic movie. Uh, now, I'm with you on that one. Thank you, Mark. Uh, Steve in New Jersey. Hey, Frank, good morning. Um, my non-Godfather favorite movie was, um, James Conn movie was Killer Elite, 1975. I don't think I've seen that. Give me the title again, Killer Elite. Yeah, the Killer Elite. The it's killer got elite. James Caan, Robert Duvall, and then for a bonus, Burt Young. Oh, love Burt Young. They have a are associated with the CIA, and the performance is not where you get in the Godfather. But when I'm, if you catch it on a rerun or something, whenever I see something in the 1970s timepiece like that, and then you have the whole hitman aspect, and then they get you get Burt Young in there. What a great cast! You know, that's great, uh, Steve. I'm going to check that one out because that's exactly why I like to do these segments because there's always a few, a, few good, uh, a few good suggestions that I get out of them. Thank you. Nora is in Oregon. Hello, Nora. I was also going to see The Killer Elite. Well, do you have a second choice? Um, uh, from about the same year, um, the Rollerball, I think, was pretty good. Rollerball is great. Rollerball is great. Yeah. Yeah, thank you, Nora. Uh, Pamela, oh, actually, we'll get to Pamela. She's on a different subject. We'll get to Pamela. Tommy on Staten Island, what do you have for us, Tommy? Thief. Sorry? The movie Thief. Oh, Thief. James Caan in the movie Thief. Yeah, uh, Thief is... Jimmy Belushi was in it as his partner. That's a great film. Uh, I enjoy that. What do you think it was about James Caan that made him so special as an actor? 
I don't know. Really not. Just realism. I don't know. Yeah. Just what? the way he, he came off real. He did. He came off real. He did. He changed the part real well. Yeah, I, I think you're exactly right, Tommy. I think that was a big part of it. Lance in Queens. Hello. Yeah, how you doing, Frank? Good, good. good morning. Good morning. Good. Can you hear me? I hear you, Lance. Be heard. Hey, you're a good paisan. Good. Now, listen, I got one good thing. I always liked this. It was a football, a football movie. It was called Brian's Song. Brian's Song. That is a classic. That's a classic. I love that. Thank you. That's a it good one. Great. And it was a true story, you know, and at the end, it just broke my heart just seeing two people. And the whole thing was, it was no racism. It was about love. About, You're right. About one, like it just came together. You're That's right. That's all I can say. It You're absolutely together. right. Lance, thank you. Hey, uh, somebody that did not like James Caan was Johnny Russo. Johnny Russo plays Carlo in The Godfather, and it's interesting, probably the best scene that that James Caan is known for, and certainly the best scene that uh, Johnny Russo is known for, is a scene that they shared when they were filming that movie, The Godfather. That's the scene with the infamous phantom punch where he misses his face and he acts punch. That's the only error in The Godfather, which is an otherwise almost perfect film. Um, Well, so when Johnny Russo was on this show last year, I talked to him about James Caan. This is what he said. Somebody that you're not as kind to in the book uh, from the cast is is James Caan. Uh, you, oh, he's such a clown. He <laughs> thinks he's Sonny Corleone right now. <laughs> I mean, this guy's a moron. <laughs> What's the problem with James Caan? How come you guys didn't hit it off on the right foot? Well, he almost got me killed. That was one of the – when I opened this uh, talking to you tonight, the guy I was worried about was Carmine Persico, who was doing life. In, in, in California. And because we did have a problem, and I did write about him in the book because of Jimmy Kahn. I was at the bar of Jilly's on the west side. Jilly's won 52nd and 8th. It was a great watering hole many years ago. And I'm at the bar, fortunately, with Boozy DeChico, who's an underboss of the Gambinos. And the name your audience definitely knows is Tommy Bellotti who got shot down with Paul Castellano in front of Sparks. And Jimmy came out from back in the back room where the piano player was and all that. And he said, Junior's in the back with his daughter. He'd like you to come back and say hello. And Junior is uh, Carmine Persico, for people yeah, who don't know, Junior, who, was, yeah. who was the boss of the Colombo crime family at the time. Right. After, after the, you know, what, we knew what was going on. He was the underboss at that time until Joe got shot. That six months later, in Columbus Circle. Mm-hmm. But anyway, he was the underboss, but a, a tough guy. His nickname was the Snake. So I go back there, and we I knew Junior. We hugged and did you know, the whole ritual. And, and I look at his daughter, and I said, wow, what a beautiful girl your daughter is. Amazing. And his face twisted. And I knew this was something's wrong here. And I said, let me go back to the bar. And I left. But before going back to the bar, I went downstairs like a lot of the bathrooms are in New York. And here comes two of Junior's guys. And they I don't know what they would have done to me if Tommy Bellotti didn't catch the move and come down there. He wrecked the first guy in two seconds because one guy was blocking the door and the other guy was standing behind me at the urinal just about to do whatever he was going to do to me. And Tommy kicked in the door and smashed the one guy's head right against the sink and opened it up. And then we went upstairs, 
And thank God Boozy was there because Boozy was a made guy. He's the only guy that can talk to Junior. We can't talk to Junior. So they went in the kitchen. Then they called for Jimmy Kahn. And as soon as Jimmy went back there, you heard two facial smacks. And that was from Junior. Junior smacked him. Yeah, so for people who, uh, again, haven't read the book, which I do recommend, it's called Hollywood Godfather, James Kahn tried to trick you into embarrassing yourself, which you did. James Kahn was caught by Carmine Persico, embarrassed, and then publicly uh, smacked by Persico. So obviously you know that James Kahn is not going to take a smacking from a mob boss, or in that case, according to Johnny Russo, a mob underboss, Carmine Persico, and not give it back to Johnny Russo somehow. Listen to what happened when they were filming The Godfather and how James Kahn, according to Johnny Russo, got back at him. James Kahn tried to trick you into embarrassing yourself, which you did. James Kahn was caught by Carmine Persico, embarrassed, and then publicly uh, smacked by Persico. And not only that, Jimmy learned a lesson with the mafia that I didn't even know. So they settled the beef. And Jimmy now, as he had a junior said, you were around us. Now you're around them. He said, what do you mean? He said, that's the way it goes. Now you answer to, 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 to you know, to Boozy and the Gambinos. So that that very famous fight scene that you guys have here in New York in front of the Rheingold truck, it looked like it got pretty physical with with the exception of that that phantom punch. That's probably one of the few bloopers in the whole whole movie. I can't believe they didn't fix that. They had it three different angles. And then they put that one in. I can't how how that got away with that. But uh, evidently, uh, maybe James Kahn was working out some of his aggression from that meeting that you had with Carmine Persico when you guys filmed that scene. Oh, he de- definitely did because we met with the stunt coordinator all of that the day before. We worked it all out. You know, they they coordinated like a, da- a dance. You have to hit your mark from here. We go here. They go there. I didn't know, and uh, we had it all down. And then the next day. He went crazy, especially with that garbage pail cover. They were the old steel garbage pail covers. And he was banging my elbow when I was against the rail there, and he chipped my elbow. And again, I was never an actor before, and I said, wow, this is a tough business. I ain't going to do fight scenes no more. (laughs) And then when I crawl out to go to the hydrant to get away from him, he drop kicks me. We had the rehearsal. As soon as his his toe touch my rib cage, I would roll over. Well, he lifted me up and broke two ribs. Wow. No, he was, forget about it, but I I got even with him. His career was destroyed. (laughs) Well, I don't know if that's true. Uh, He certainly got a lot of great roles after that. Hey, uh, by the way, if you want to try and win $1,000, be the seventh caller right now to 800-848-9222. Uh, that's 800-848-9222. Those of you that are on hold, though, I will take your calls um, in uh, after we do the $1,000 minute. But as we go to break, I want you to listen to this brilliant answer from Larry King, from James Caan to Larry King, another legend we lost not long ago, about one of the most difficult roles he's had. Uh, Dr. Dunk on Twitter wants to know, what was your most challenging role to date and why? 
I think it was a Kaiser, and it was four days old. I couldn't Kaiser bite into roll. this. It's a roll for those of you not from I could not bite into it. It was exhausting. It's I, terrible. A Kaiser was my favorite roll. Really? Yeah, look, the seeds on I knew top. that, Larry. I looked you yeah. up. <laughs> the Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. This is The Other Side of Midnight. I'm Frank Morano. Uh, time now for us to try and give away some money. It is time for... The Other Side of Midnight presents... It's the $1,000 Minute. Answer 10 questions correctly in one minute, and you could win $1,000. Here's your host, Frank Morano. Uh, let us meet today's contestant, Joe in Ron Kunkama. No, uh, no stranger to this audience. Hello, Joe. Hey, Frank. How you doing? I'm doing great. Uh, you, you got a lot of fans out there, Joe. I know. I think everybody's rooting for you. Uh, it's, like I said, this radio program has been such a help, such we work in all the nights. I love your uh, program. And like all the people I've met and uh, I talk to, all great people out there. Oh, well, that's awfully nice of you. Now we're really rooting for you. All right. You know the rules, so uh, if you're ready, we'll get started. I'm ready, brother. All right. What continent is south of North America? Um, Mexico? Let's start this again, Joe, right? The, the answer is almost in the question, right? What continent, not country, what continent is directly south of North America? Continent. North America? <laughs> I'm throwing a blank here, Frank. Joe, Joe, Joe. I, I tried uh, to throw you a lifeline. Joe, it's South America. South of, oh, south oh, of North God. America is South America, uh, Joe. Oh, God, I want to smack myself. I played last time September 18, 2021, and I'm like, I pulled over. I'm not doing anything. I'm trying to be relaxed. And, oh, my God, my daughter and son are going to kill me. Joe, forget it. The Facebook group is going to give you hell over this, Joe. This is something. I deserve it, Frank. Uh, (laughs) You know, I don't think we can give you a consolation prize after this. Well, we have to. Uh, Joe, you deserve one just for being such a great listener and contributor. Even You do not deserve one for your performance. I want to be very clear. Joe, I'm putting you on hold. Give Kenneth uh, your information, and we'll send you a prize. Guys, that's the giveaway question. The first question, it's it's like, how do you spell cat? That's, That's the easy one. South of North America? Continent? South America? Okay. All right. Let me get past that. All right. 800-848-9222 if you want to comment on any, anything else that we've covered. Carol is in New Jersey. Hello, Carol. Hi there, Frank. I haven't spoken to you in a while. Yeah, where have you been hiding, Carol? I haven't been hiding. I was in the hospital for like a month. Right, but then didn't I, you didn't you come out? Well, that was something else. That oh, was okay. something else. I, no, I wasn't there for a long period of time. That was brief. I was there for tests. I like fractured up my knee like you wouldn't believe. I felt like a professional 
athlete. In fact, I'm still wearing oh, boy. something on, on my leg. I'd hate to see what the other guy looks like. <laughs> no, it wasn't anything like that. But I I love James Kahn. I didn't know he was Jewish. I thought he was Italian. Well, a lot of people did. Uh, no, he was absolutely, absolutely Jewish. As I said, he was the, uh, the son of... Uh, Jewish immigrants mm-hmm. from Germany uh, yeah. that came here in the 30s, I think. Yeah, but he was fantastic as Sonny. Yeah, and, I mean, and he really was. I mean, I think he was great in everything. His dad was a butcher. Yeah. You know, it just goes to show you, you really can, um, you know, come from very humble beginnings and still become one of the biggest stars in the world. Um, you know, you know, Derek Jacoby, the British actor, his father was a butcher. Is that right? Is that right? <laughs> yes, Carol, I'm glad, you're, I'm glad you're feeling better. I'm glad you're calling, calling again, and uh, thanks for calling. We're going we're gonna to connect you with Chris and the Catskills and Alex uh, Barnard. The three of you guys can go out. You guys will have a great time. Nobody will hear anything the other one is saying because all three of you will be telling personal anecdotes about y- yourselves and not paying any attention to what the other person is saying. But I think you'll all get a lot out of it. Fred is in Brooklyn. Hello, Fred. Hey, Frank. Boy, I, I tell you, I, I called in to to tell you that I thought Honeymoon in Vegas was a great James Conn movie. And then you say, call in for the, the strike. And to hear that Mexico answer while on hold, I dropped my cell phone on the floor. I couldn't look. You, you laid it out for him. I, it drove me crazy. Boy. All right. But um, Honeymoon in Vegas. James Conn's performance in that with the poker game at the beginning. Oh, it, you're so right. It, 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 I oh my! I didn't think the whole, to it set the, you, the pace you, for the whole movie. You, no, you're you're so right, and I didn't think to mention that. And shame on me. I saw that film in theaters. Um, Nicholas Cage is great in that, but James Conn, as you said, is tremendous in that. Um, he's he's funny. But he's also a little scary. It's a great, great picture. And, well, it's not a great picture. His performance is great in that picture. The flying Elvis is at the end. <laughs> but but that Love poker game, the way, the way that they rung him in for that poker game, just fantastic. Absolutely. Absolutely. Thank you. You know, it's funny. I was talking with uh, some friends of mine the other day about James Conn. It just so uh, – not this a couple of weeks ago, actually. And it just so happened – we had no whole James Conn discussion – and I think I might have played that Curtis apology. And uh, a friend of mine says, I don't know anything about. Th-. He was joking. I don't know anything about this Godfather movie you're talking about. But he's great in that movie, Elf. But uh, he was making a joke. But on the the serious side of that, he did have a tremendous variety and a tremendous versatility as an actor. He could do drama. He could do comedy. He could do action. He was an incredible guy and an incredible performer. And I'm sorry I never got to meet him. Uh, and finally, on the James Conn front, and then you could start queuing up for 15 seconds of fame, if you like, at 800-848-9222. Uh, I see Alex Barnard pacing because I might not go to break soon enough. And we don't want him pacing. Uh, let me say hello to Roger in Massachusetts. Hello, Roger. Yeah, regarding versatility. Now, you know that early on he was with uh, in a Western with John Wayne and Robert Mitchum. Yeah, um, I like oh, that Western. Early. Yeah, that was... Um, uh, El Dorado or something? Yeah, that's exactly what it was. El Dorado. That's exactly what it was. Yeah. 
Yeah. No, yeah. that's right. That's I, I wanted to say. Th- that's a great picture as well, Roger. Thank you. All right, we're going to do 15 seconds of fame next. We'll give you an opportunity to comment on whatever you like. Uh, 800-848-9222. There will be no trick questions about continents. That's a solemn promise, at least not for the next seven minutes. This is The Other Side of Midnight. Straight ahead. The Other Side of Midnight. It's The Other Side of Midnight with Frank Morano. Midnight. I am Frank Morano, uh, and uh, we will close out the week as we close out every program by giving you an opportunity to be heard for 15 seconds. You can say whatever you like for 15 seconds. Still one open line if you want to dial in. It's 800-848-9222 because it's time for... The Other Side of Midnight. This is 15 Seconds of Faith. Let us go to Fred in Yonkers. Hey, Frank, you mentioned ecotourism in your Hawaii trip. My friend Charlie does ecotourism. He's a spelunker. Hello, 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 hello. That's funny. Not to be outfretted, Fred in Garfield. And it's a true story. All right, Rick in Tom's River. Good morning. Happy uh, weekend. Listen, Dominic Carter has the worst speaking voice. I can't stand it. Well, not everybody can sound as good as you do on the radio, Rick. Eric on Long Island. Hey, Topsy, I'm worried. If I get Alzheimer's, what'll I do? Mike in New Jersey. Morning, Frank. Frank, the real reason Boris Johnson resigned was his hair. When he moved into 10 Downing Street, he misplaced his poem. And the people... Victor in Manhattan. Uh, very few people realize that Georgie Jessel was originally selected for the lead role in the first talking uh, 1927 movie, The Jazz Singer, which starred Al Jolson. Jessel was such a bad singer that he once tried to carry a tune across the street and broke, broke both legs. <laughs> Joe and Ron Konkama. Frank, I got nervous, to be honest with you. So I just wanted to let you know, I thought you said country, but I'm not going to be one of those people that's going to want a second chance. Thank you for giving me the opportunity again, and have a great weekend. Uh, thank you, uh, Joe. Joe's a great guy. All right, we'll, we'll end it there. That about slams the lid on things for today. Uh, you want to stay in touch with me, you can do so by email. If you email me, I'll also put you on my email list where you'll get all sorts of unsolicited show advertisements from me. My email is frank.morano at wabcradio.com. That's frank.morano at wabcradio.com. Also join the Facebook group, Morano Radio Fans and Haters. It's M-O-R-A-N-O, Radio Fans and Haters. Hope you have a great weekend. I'm heading down to Atlantic City. Maybe I'll see you there. Frank Morano, good day.